I was a library captain and everything. Your school uh, had a library captain? Yeah. What, what is, what a, is library a library captain? captain? Um, I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're talking about Reaper Man, where Death finds himself at his own door and has no choice but to build a new one. And our guest is Pratchett fan Sarah Pearson. Welcome, Sarah. Uh, hi. It's such a pleasure to have you. I mean, we, we were quite mysterious with our listeners as to why we were inviting you on the show and how mm. we found you. But we, we found you via a television show, didn't we? Yeah, no, I was on Hard Quiz late last year. And what was your specialist subject? Terry Pratchett. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they asked you some really fiendishly difficult questions. They really did. I mean, that is kind of the point. Yes. Um, to be fair, I thought I was going to be talking about Terry Pratchett's Discworld rather than just Terry. Right. Mm. So some of my study materials weren't exactly perfect, but... Uh, <laughs> point of the show is not to do well. The point of the show is to allow yourself to be roasted by Tom Gleason. <laughs> <laughs> and you certainly did that. Yes, yes. Yes. There was a great zinger I got against him, but it didn't make it to air. Oh, um, what, did, what did you say? Um, I compared him to a tall and spiky cactus. <laughs> I suggested I would plant a tall and spiky cactus <laughs> in the mug to remember him by. <laughs> oh, oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. 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 I remember one of the questions that they asked you that was really difficult. I would not have got it right, which was in which book did they first mention Hogswatch or the Hogfather? I forget which one oh, it was, no. but it was one or the other. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember this one now. Because you had a good guess. I thought your guess was quite reasonable, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I don't remember what it was either. It was one it of the was... early Discworld books. Yeah. It's actually now almost a, oh, just over a year since I recorded it. Yeah. But I've only watched the episode the once. So I don't even remember what my guess was, but something early i knew that they'd mentioned it before hogfather yeah but yeah i think it's i think i guess something early somewhere in the first 10 and of course it turned out to be the worst kind of question it was a trick question because the first time it's mentioned is not even in a discworld book mm. oh it was dark side of the sun yeah yeah which i have read but only the once that's just rude yeah i thought that was pretty it's sort of the proto discworld book yeah yes yeah. that's like all of those questions were really very rude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, like you say, that was the point, really, wasn't it? Too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but was it fun? Did you have a good time? Yeah, I did. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, cool. Tom's Tom is somehow very good at making you laugh while also really having a good go at you. <laughs> you didn't feel bad. About you felt proud that you were still standing upright afterwards. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. And um, now I'm picturing him as a sentient cactus. So <laughs> I'll yeah. always think of him that way now. Yeah. Mm. Oh God, he might tweet at me. That would be bad. No, <laughs> you just fine. send some spiky responses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're no stranger to the world of television, though, because you work in the television industry, and you have. I think you've got a really interesting job because you work as a captioner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I've been doing that for 
coming on nine years now. It'll be nine years in January. My job is literally to watch television. Basically, I'll watch through a program. Uh, if I was at work this week, it would definitely be Survivor and Bachelor. Right. And um, just transcribe what they say and decide what their weird noises should be rendered like. <laughs> do you do that live? Um, we have a we have a live department and a pre-recorded department. Mm-hmm. I'm in the pre-recorded. We work very closely together, though. I remember a 15 minute conversation about how to uh, caption the noises the eventual Eurovision winner this year <laughs> made. <laughs> we have one of the live department people come out to us and say, uh, "I do not know what to do with this. We have to prep this for when she goes to air in the final." Help. Yeah. And yes, it was a 15 minute conversation of. Uh, what do we do? <laughs> how yeah. do we make this make sense? And how do we explain this if you've never heard sound? Mm. So, yeah, it's it's a very interesting job. We're all nerds and it's a really fun place to work. Yeah. Uh, but we are here to discuss a particular book. So here we go with the blurb. Death is missing. Presumed uh, gone? Which leads to the kind of chaos you always get when an important public service is withdrawn. Meanwhile, on a little farm far, far away, a tall, dark stranger is turning out to be really good with a scythe. There's a harvest to be gathered in. It doesn't really say much about the plot of the book. Um, I mean, it's the central premise of the book, Mm. really. But, I mean, that's the interesting thing, as I think we'll get to fairly quickly, is that this book is really kind of at least two plots side by Mm. side. Yeah, it's definitely, to me, it's two books. Yeah. Just sort of winding in and out around each other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's two novellas tangentially connected. Whereas like Ang and the Moorpork were like yeah, Ang, yeah. together to form a greater thing. These stories are linked by a brass bridge of some sort. <laughs> Better um, make sure someone's guarding it, otherwise someone might steal it. Yeah. Um but we don't start in Ank in this book. We don't really start anywhere. We start talking about Morris dancing. That's, that's my favorite true. dancing. Is it? Is it? <laughs> is it your favorite dancing? Yeah, because I thought I was the only person who'd heard of it, like when I was a child. Because I was like, "Oh, look at this funny thing!" And then just in the last three years, it's cropped up quite a lot of places. Like I know this book is more than three years old, or is it? But um, it was even an Australian film, um, Three Summers, where the, the one of the main characters does Morris dancing, and it's yeah, it's just it's a joy, really. Mm. It's just Men in white costumes with flowers sometimes and bells jumping around and banging sticks together in a you know joyous sort of frolic. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've I've been long familiar with Morris dancing. I went to university with the same you know the right kind of nerds, um, <laughs> and uh, I know many people who've Morris danced. Um, not just men, men and women. Oh, really? Uh, which you know is not the traditional way, but you know. Screw the traditional way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when I think about it, I just sort of see this hazy movement of white fabrics everywhere and it's like, and I'm sure this is something to do with my heritage, you know, my parent, my father's from the UK and it's like, I I feel like I should know about this. It feels culturally important, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I've conflated it now in my mind with the fish slapping dance from Monty Python because I think they did a Morris dancing thing and they also did that. Or they're wearing Morris dancing gear while they do it. There's just... It is... I think it is meant to be a bit Morris-esque. Yeah. The fish slapping dance. It's, it's certainly weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, it gets a mention. Interestingly, is not at all part of the plot in this book. I mean, it'll come back in another book as a very important part of the plot, but not not here. It's really only mentioned at the start and the ending. So it's, I felt... Yeah. Which felt a bit weird to me. I was like, 
why did you mention this? You don't really say why it's... Because if you're going to tug at the fabric of reality, you have to point out that Morris dancing exists as a thing that is real. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But we very quickly move on from there to the matter at hand, which is that some people are not very happy with the way Death conducts his business on the Discworld. And this is the first time we meet these characters, the auditors of reality. The revenue. With with the revenue. (laughs) Yeah, the revenuers. They're, They're kind of... I mean, we all hate them, right? Well, I mean, I find them kind of interesting because I think we all know that person, even though they purport to not be people and not have identity. I think we all know that person who's like, these are the rules, this is not how it should be, make it how it should be. And it's in absence of any kind of reality or sort of there's no flexibility in it at all. There's no flexibility in them. And, I mean, the moment any one of them has flexibility, says I – Bang, gone. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, they can't move, I guess, is what I would say. They're yeah. kind of like Philosopher's Stone Aunt Petunia because they describe her as like a curtain twitchy type who likes very stickler for the rules who'd love to call the hotline, the criminal hotline on her neighbours. And I kind of get that vibe from them. If they had to exist in a different world, they'd be the, yeah, the sticklers for the rules. Yeah, it's sticklers on steroids, really. Mm. Yeah. So they wouldn't do that because it's illegal. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's right. It's against the rules. Not uh, to be a stickler, but... <laughs> hey, my line of work is all sticklers. <laughs> yeah. I found it very interesting, though, because we, we get introduced to Azrael right near the start of the book as well. Azrael, the death of the entire universe, for whom all other deaths are these sort of, you know, subsidiaries, um, if that's the right word. But I, I like they they've gone to talk to him, like he's the supreme authority, or is it just that they're talking to him because it's a death they want to talk about? I wasn't clear about that. I thought they were talking near him and he's just there and they're talking to each other. Right. But I don't know. Yeah, they- it, it kind of seems like the space they're in, if they want to discuss things, that is also where he happens to be, that that he's the, just that large that they could try and find a private meeting room, but it wouldn't work because it'd probably be behind his kneecap or something. Mm-hmm. Are they? Do you think they'd be allowed to replace death without Azrael's say-so? I think there's a fair bit of the Pratchett death that we know and love in Azrael. I think mm. I think you see it at the end. So I think maybe they are the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. So like we would like to get rid of death. So we've filled out all of the correct forms. We've gone into the building we need to go to. We should probably run it past this guy specifically, but he's nearby, so that's all right. So technically, by the rules, we're okay. Ethically, doesn't matter. Yeah, because they're not about ethics. No. Yeah, that's true. Um, in fact, they're kind of anti-ethics, really, because yeah. that's, their, that's their problem with death. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, he gets fired. And I liked my favorite touch of this is that when he finds his lifetimer, it's quite small. And made of gold. Yeah. <laughs> They've given him a gold watch to send him <laughs> off. Oh, oh gosh, nice. I totally missed that illusion. Yeah. That's so, great. Yeah, I thought that was cute. Yeah. Yeah. But he does get to keep his horse. Um, Binky. Yeah. Oh, and, Binky. And you know, it's interesting because he has that conversation with Albert, um, his manservant, who we met previously in Mort, um, and then sort of just says, I'm off to spend my life because I have some time to spend, you know. And Albert just sort of gets left behind and there's no sort of mention about what's going to happen to him. He just sort of stays behind in Death's Domain. And you're like, uh, he's just going to wait for the new guy, whoever that might be. Yeah. Yeah. Making porridge. Yeah. Pass the time. Yeah. Well, what else is he going to do? Feed the bees. Do you feed bees? Well, bees feed themselves and you just sort of like... Are near them. You keep bees. But we go from one kind of insect to another because 
we then get our illusion with the mayflies, which was it was it was funny reading about that. You know, we only read Truckers a couple of episodes ago, um, where that's comparing the lives of gnomes to humans in a way that's a bit like mayflies. And here we've got the mayflies, you know, having their arguments about, oh, you don't get hours like you used to get. You know, yeah, the sun minutes. used to be more more yellow and a bit higher. <laughs> yeah, I remember when there was a cow it stood there for like forty minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they have that, they have their religion about how you get eaten by the great trout, but nobody really knows what the trout is. <laughs> Just some people disappear and then there's ripples on the water. That means someone's gone to the happier place. Yeah. I thought that, that was all really cute. Mm. I, I do enjoy, I think one of the not quite as old mayflies is starts to regard things with su- suspicion right after the oldest mayflies go. He's like, why do I have to go to the middle of the pond? Yeah. <laughs> why is that me? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a, a skeptics movement. Yeah, the yeah. The mayflies. Birth of atheism among the mayflies. <laughs> I mean, it's quite. But I mean, you have to think quite fast if you only live for a day, really, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, fast is relative, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, with the trees, and they don't. They're moving. Their concept of time is so long that they don't even notice someone's cu- cutting into them until the trees cut down. Yeah, yeah that was that was done so well. Like just, and then he was gone, like mid sentence, and then. Yeah, his because he was thirty one thousand fifty seven and and then he yeah. was making the street signs for like yeah. all these different houses. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that was just such a pratchety thing. And there's an illusion. There's a footnote later on. Oh, it's not even a footnote. Just someone mentions, aren't there like these cuckoos who live up in the ram tops who make their own clocks to nest in? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but they don't keep very good time. <laughs> Uh, and it's just that sort of very Pratchetty Discworldy thing where there's something that we would make on our world, but it just grows somewhere on the Discworld. Mm. Yeah, which is kind of relevant for the second half of the story, I guess, as well. Mm. Mm. That's true, and and I I do love that when we eventually get to the part where there's all these different deaths popping up, they talk about how the death of the trees is just a sound. It's just the sound of axes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have a form. No. You're like, oh, that's creepy. Oh. Can you imagine if that was like the human death? It's like the sound of axes. Like, oh, I'd rather Gosh. have the scythe guy. I don't uh, think anyone would do any logging. Because <laughs> mm. we're reading this after moving pictures, the other thing that this reminded me is that I was too ready to see allusions to films. Mm. And so every time they said Elm Street, I was thinking, oh, it's like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's nothing to do with Nightmare on Elm Street, but it's just there's every town has an Elm Street, including Ankh-Morpork, it seems. He did also throw in a casual Indiana Jones, so like you weren't oh, completely yeah. off base there. That's true, and quite a few not-so-casual aliens references <laughs> towards the end, but we'll, we'll get to those. Um, uh, yeah, because we're getting a bit long-windled, so we should probably... We, we should. We should push on. We should push on. Congratulations on that. That was great. Thank <laughs> you. This is the opposite reaction to that poor fool who got the terrible pun reaction in a later scene. Oh, yeah. Where everyone just, like, was real serious about his pun. The Windle, like, one of the oldest wizards, 130, mm. as wizards get know they're going to die, he knows that his death is coming up, and he's real sad that no one is taking the hint that he's going to die, and so he sort of sadly shuffles into his room and then suddenly there's a surprise party for yeah. him like a, a death party well they call it a going away yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's yeah. such a nice euphemism <laughs> well well i know again it's that sort of metaphor for retirement as well it's like they keep checking their watch mm. in case it's like aren't you supposed to go now window is it now window oh. here's some cake window would yeah. you like to go we decided about the snacks and we put a nice paper hat there for you and everything and yes yeah. All yeah. very awkward. It's like, you're going to leave, but you haven't yet. We don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's the walking in the same direction as someone once you've said bye kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. 
And I, I mean, it's interesting that I, I felt so attached to Windle. I was sad about him, mm. even though we'd only met him one book earlier and he was kind of a dirty old jerk. man. Yeah. <laughs> but he, in this book, you know, you, you have a lot of sympathy for him because first of all, he's going to die and then he doesn't die, which is potentially even worse from his perspective. Well, he does. It's just, it's more like he called an Uber and no one came to pick him up. <laughs> so he's like, do I try and get to the party by myself or do I go back into my house? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. I had not thought about death as being an Uber before, but now <laughs> well, I'm going to think of that all the time. Well, I, I guess I feel like with death all through Pratchett, it's like he shows up mm. and he, he does he says the right things and he takes you away. And that's kind of what it feels like. He's like, okay, I'm out of my body. I'm dead. All right. Where's the womb for my rebirth? Because he's coming back as a lady. He's decided. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, which kind of jives with the lecherous old man, really, doesn't it? Yeah. And he decided he was going to be like a liberated lady. Like he wasn't going to go in for all that cookery stuff. No. Mm. Mm. Maybe when Wendell Poons comes back, he'll be played by Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the complaining that would happen. Oh, gosh. He's going to regenerate. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, so they had that really nice little description of him wandering around because wizards are promised like a personal meet and greet with death because like, they've got like a VIP thing. So when he doesn't show up, he knows it's strange and he's sort of like, we'll blow this for a lark. I'm not going to hang around in the in-between. And because he's a wizard, he, and as far as we know, he alone out of all the people who die in this book fights his way back into his body. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because we don't find out about anybody else doing that. No. No. Yeah, it seems like most of them end up in the crystal ball mm, or yeah. at least wherever the crystal ball connects to. Yeah. They're wandering around in the spirit realm, yes. uh, not going on to wherever they're supposed to go on to. Annoying, they're waiting at the train station. Annoying mm. one man bucket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, he's, he's sort of doesn't really know what to do, but when he goes back into his body, he's suddenly sort of able to connect to it and figure out how to make it go, even though it's not alive anymore. Um, and he finds he can think clearly and he can see clearly and he can walk properly and he's incredibly strong because he's effectively got complete control over his body because he's doing it through force of will, I suppose. Except for the spleen, because he's like, what does a spleen do? Mm. And having done uni, I was like, what does a spleen do? Because I've forgotten because you can have it removed and be pretty much okay. So I asked a doctor and they were like, oh, well, spleens. Spleen's ridiculous. We should just have two livers. <laughs> And the spleen is basically the elephant's graveyard, but for blood. It does other stuff too, but like blood goes there to die. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. I now now I'm imagining all these little goblins going there because because little red hemo- blood cell goblin- goblins. Yeah, hemoglobins. Yeah, hemoglobins. Yeah. <laughs> what would the death of blood look like? like- <laughs> oh, like a like a oh, like a white corpuscle. I don't know. Yeah. Like, like a spleen. Like a spleen. <laughs> Oh. Well, thank you. I didn't know. I was. I actually have a note here that says simply spleen, page 28. <laughs> what is a spleen? That's actually a really good question. Like, Please far, explain. Yeah, as far as I was concerned, it might as well have said squiddly splooge, you know, like I just don't know. <laughs> it may as um, well be called that because it's like, yeah. This takes the other wizards by as much surprise as it takes him because he sort of goes into the grand hall and everyone's like, hang on. And he's super strong, kind of like that episode of Buffy where she hasn't had enough, like something happens, like she's too cheerful, so she is too strong. It's like she smashes her alarm clock through her chest and drawers oh, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. And I, this was, I thought it was really great how he explained why zombies lurch, because they're having to think about how the body works, whereas normally your body just bodies. But why would you be super strong in that situation? 
Yeah, well, I, that's a good question. And maybe it's because instead of distributing your brain's sort of motive power energy across your whole body and all its autonomic functions, instead you're just directing all of the brain's attention to just the bit you're thinking about moving. So, and I'm just making this up as I go along, but when you think, when you think I'm going to punch that wall, all of your willpower goes into punching the wall and none of your brain's attention is on standing up straight or breathing or doing anything else. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. Yeah. It's like if you had like a body of water all rushing down a thing and normally yeah. it's going off into different tributaries, but suddenly all the other ones are switched off, all the water would gush into one and be too much and overflow the banks. So Yeah. But I think also it's just tradition. Yes. Yeah. I kind of think of the gym where they're like, engage your core. <laughs> and it's like maybe it's just very, very easy to engage muscles, mm. like without the sort of – the part of you that's used to not thinking about how they work and not really in touch with how they work. Mm. Maybe it just puts you in touch and it goes, oh, this is how, these are all the buttons I press, which you don't consciously think about. Yeah. Just button mashing. Yeah. Just, yes. Yeah. Playing Street Fighter, getting the buttons <laughs> yeah. harder. Oh, that's good. You know, the original Street Fighter actually worked where it had buttons where you, the harder you pressed them, the harder your character punched. And that's why everybody remembers Street Fighter 2 and no one remembers Street Fighter 1 because it was terrible. Um, I'm pretty sure there was a version of Street Fighter 1 that didn't have those buttons, but I, I think that's a true story. I'm going to have to corroborate that for the show notes. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've written Wizard seems, Can't Deal. <laughs> yeah, this seems like a one-way trip to breaking your arcade box, surely. Yeah, I think that was a bit of a problem. I don't think they were very long-lived those Or that was machines. the point. And uh, so then they sold more arcade machines? Maybe, but they really they wanted more people to play them. Uh, they, they had planned money obsolescence in the 80s? Yes. <laughs> true, true. They did, they did do that. Uh, but they did, and look, they have planned obsolescence on the Discworld for people as well, but Windows not really having any of it in this case. Um, I'm sorry to ruin that, but what a great segue you just did. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. Yeah, that was very smooth. Oh, thanks. Unlike but- Windows passage through the university which just wreaks havoc everywhere and so the wizards decide they've got to do something about him they they think oh he's an undead he's an undead there's a great joke where place. he's going oh he, he can't he can't pass water zombies can't pass water <laughs> like what and they get no oh, don't cross running water sorry yeah um <laughs> we should get a black cat and put it on his grave but he hasn't got one yet yeah. <laughs> we can get him one and buy a cat and then put the cat on the- <laughs> <laughs> oh man they just try they just try everything and nothing works and i feel like they they like the attitude, I think a lot of people when faced with a zombie is like, oh crap, kill it. Theirs mm. is, our friend is not as he should be. We must fix this. It's a benevolent thing they're trying to do in a very haphazard sort of way. So yeah. the bursar who's like well freaked out. Well, yeah, this is, this is kind of the beginning of the bursar and his problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we never, his name's not mentioned here either i think we do i said in the last episode we never find out his name i think we do eventually find out what his name is but we certainly don't find it out anytime soon um and this is yeah as you say this is where he's really starting to become unhinged and not feeling well and look when you think about the things that happened to him in the previous book and this book and his kind of mental state and what he'd prefer to be doing yeah i think i think that kind of makes sense um but yeah, he's not having a good day, no. uh, and, and and neither is Windle. You know, like uh, they try and thrust garlic in his face. There's a great scene where they play, you know, guess the holy symbol. They keep showing him different holy symbols of different gods, and he's like identifying them all, but none of them like freak him out. It's like, oh, here's Offla. <laughs> yeah, uh, and eventually they decide that well, the thing that should work is we'll bury him at a crossroads. <laughs> So they choose the busiest crossroads yeah. they can possibly get, and the peaches are getting bruised. Yeah, yeah. That's terrible. They're holding up all the traffic. There's just no good time for roadworks unless it's like 2 a.m. 
on Boxing Day. That's mm. like the one time of the year it's okay mm. yeah. to dig up a road. Yeah, but I mean, you gotta you gotta dig up roads, don't you? Otherwise, not in Rome. You just threw your garbage out the window, and it made a new road eventually, and just built your house higher. Really? Yeah, it's not. I don't know if that's like one of those things that's like everyone thinks is true, but it's not true. Uh-huh. I think but- that's reasonably true with a lot of cities. I know at least Seattle and Chicago have got like under. Under spaces. Mm. Catacombs that, of old buildings. Of old buildings, yeah. Wow. Layers of them. Well, yeah. I mean, we know that's true of um, Ankh-Morpork as well, well because yeah. in Men-at-Arms they go visiting the old city underneath yeah, exactly. in the sewers. Yeah, um, Or what has become the sewers, which is <laughs> <laughs> just the streets of the old Ankh-Morpork. Um, yeah, but they, they dig it up. They try and bury them in a, in a, in a coffin. At least they give him like a nice burial. Um, he got to choose his own coffin, which is nice. Yeah. And they, and they're going to put a stake through his heart as well, just to be sure, <laughs> except that they couldn't get a stake. So yeah, the, the bush was, was closed or something. So they just give him a celery. Yeah. It's, it felt very Python esque. Yeah. It's just, yeah, comedy of errors. And okay. the conversation before that, they're like, oh, yeah, you need garlic with the steak. It's like, oh, well, if it's a good steak, you just need a bit of oil and maybe a bit of sauce. Like, you don't need the garlic as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I um, I think one of the other things that I really enjoyed throughout this whole bit is um, Rid Cully, who's getting a bit more engaged with what's going on, but still, like, just no suffering of any fools. Like, I lost track of the number of times there was a sentence which just read, shut up, said the Arch-Chancellor. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, this is fantastic. Um, but he's but he's he's on board. He's like, we've got to sort this out, rather than in the previous book where he's a bit like, no, oh, I can't be holding with this, so I'm going to go off and do something else. Um, so it was, it's nice to see a little bit of evolution there of his character. Yeah, he's not just drinking hat whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he, he is also doing that. <laughs> well, until his hat whiskey gets eaten by something else. But oh, Yeah, that was... Yeah. That was yeah. By a compost heap? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. the compost team. I kind of picture him as like a slightly magical Teddy Roosevelt. I, I picture, <laughs> right. I picture him as like a magical Teddy Roosevelt. And because they talk about him like, what ho and let's hunt and let's fish. And he's got like fishing flies oh, fishing on his yeah. hats and yeah. stuff. And it's like, Little I actually really enjoy him because he's so different from the other wizards. Yeah. And they, series. and they just, dis- he disturbs them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he gets stuff done. He yeah. does. You know? I mean, mostly by just sheer bloody-mindedness. Um, and I, I like, do like the way he's described as, like, not wanting to... Like, he just doesn't listen to people. But if they're still explaining something to him after about four minutes, then he knows it's worth paying attention to. Whereas <laughs> if they've given up by that time, he's like, it's not worth my time. Well, I guess we... I wish we could all live our lives like that, hey? Mm. Mm. Well, I guess yeah. we could, but, like, there'd be a lot of silence yeah I was, I was trying to figure out whether it would be silence or noise and i think if we all did it it'd be silence yeah, yeah. anyway anyway <laughs> um, but uh yeah windle is buried in the coffin and finally they do get him buried under the crossroads but um then he sort of realizes that it's not working he's still in his undead state and that's when he finds a matchbook hidden in the coffin that mentions something called the fresh start club <laughs> uh, and decides that all right well i've got to do something about this i might as well go and find this place and see what it's all about. Yeah, then he kill Bill's his way out of the out of the coffin. He does, and digs yeah. a hole through the ground to get back to the university, and then find his way to the Fresh Start Club. But that, I mean, that whole, whole sequence. There's about thirty pages there hmm. where death does not appear. <laughs> the book. Yeah. He just sort of shows yeah. up, gets fired, runs off, and then he's just not in the book for ages. And then, not um, to be a stickler, arguably death is not in most of the book because suddenly it's Mr. Sky. No way. It's not Mr. Sky. Cause no one's called Mr. Sky. That's right. Yeah. It's Mr. Door. Door. Mr. Door. That's true. Cause yeah. he turns up somewhere in the, 
Ramtops. It, it's in, what's in the it's in the fields below the ramtop. It sounds like I think they it's, refer to it as octarine grass country, which means it's kind of the same place where Mort grew up. So it's yeah. like the ra- Rambolos. The ra- <laughs> <laughs> The ram's bottoms. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I sort of picture the ram tops sort of being somewhere above their heads at all times. Yeah, yeah. It's Wait, like pastoral. Yeah. That, does that mean that Lady Sybil's family is from like near there because she's like ram kin? Uh, could be, yes. Maybe there were bigger swamp dragons mm. who back in the ram tops. Well, we know well because the previous book mentions that Ridkelly has hunting dragons. Mm. Yeah, true. You'd have to think they were at least a little bit bigger than the swamp dragons. And I mean, Ridcully's essentially from the Ram Tops as well, which it, because mm. of the time we know he spent with Granny Weatherwax, mm. never really left the Ram Tops. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it's all it's all a bit interesting. And I I thought that was a bit weird because you know here's Death. He's decided to spend some time on the Discworld, like spending his life, and he goes to a country place and he decides he's going to get a job and become you know a farmhand is it because he's been put out to pasture or is like is that the thing <laughs> that could be why that could be why i don't know but it, i mean um i i mean i he never gives a reason for why he's come to this particular place and i kind of just guessed that it was you know he's not that familiar with any places aside from where he's been for work except that he came to a place like this to recruit mort as his apprentice and I thought maybe that's got something to do with it, but then why isn't he visiting him? And there's just that one line later in the book where he's talking with his the woman who's about to employ him at the part we're talking about now, Miss Flitworth, um, who asks, you know, if he's got any children. He says, I have a daughter, but we've lost touch, which is the only reference to the previous events. Um, and I was just like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's nice that you're not relying on the story of the previous story, but at the same time, if you are going to die... And you're going back to the mortal world. Like, surely that is the time when you reconnect with your family. Maybe he's doing it for her own good, though. Like, he could be mm. like, they need to live their separate mortal life without me. Because they, they did choose to go away. Mm. So, that True. suggests that they don't want any of that supernatural hocus pocus. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, he does promise to visit. And they seem to want him to. It's I think it's I, when we get up to soul music and Hogfather, I think it would be really interesting to see to reread how that is kind of explained because it's kind of I mean what do you think Sarah I mean I've got my sort of first encounter with Pratchett was actually the two animated Cosgrove Hall things particularly Mm -hmm. soul music and I've got memories of Isabel being in that and talking about how they don't want to want Susan to grow up around him that I think perhaps that there's like a fundamental disagreement in how they want to live their lives and he I think respects the boundary that they may have set up Right. So they could have had Susan by then, and that's where, like, the yeah. line mm. was drawn. They could have had lots of visits before then, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And, then, I, and then had one of those family falling out with, like, oh, yes, I'll give you the money to send them to private school. No, we'd like them not to go to private school or, or to your old school kind of thing. And then... Yeah. I mean, I can't remember if there's sort of similar explanation in the actual book, but to me that sort of... The way I interpret it is that they've put that barrier there. That's not necessarily something he's put there, and... Being death, he tends to just respect people. Yeah, yeah. Also, Mort sucks, and I wouldn't want to hang out with him. <laughs> okay, yeah, full on, but fair, fair, harsh but fair. Uh, but for whatever reason, he has come to this place, and he gets himself a job as a farmhand for Miss Flitworth on her running down, or running down, her rundown farm. <laughs> Um, for six months a week, and he has to sleep in the barn because it wouldn't be proper. No, 
No. And you know, I, I, it's been such a long time since I read this book and I have clearer memories of some of the other ones, either because I'd read them more often or because I'd read them more recently. But this one, I, I couldn't remember if there was going to be a romance plot between death and Miss Flitworth. And I kind of wanted there not to be. It's kind of, I, I have this thing about Doctor Who as well. Like I, I don't like it when they do a romance plot between the Doctor and one of his companions because I know it's not going to work out. And then he has right? to split into two people so that one of them can be with Exactly, because he's got to move on. Like he's, it's, it, and death is in a similar position where he's immortal, he's going to live forever, and he's got to go off and do his job. So he's never going to settle down and there's not going to be a happy ending. And uh, I thought it was really interesting how um, Amy, when she was on, described a romance story is one where there's two people and it's not whether or not they're going to get together but how are they going to get together and have their happy ending yeah um whereas you know if you if you set up this grand romance and you know it's going to end badly that's not a romance story anymore it's it's a tragedy tragedy. um so and i don't like that i don't want that just makes me sad so i was i couldn't remember if that was in this book or not and i and i was kind of glad for most of the story it wasn't didn't feel like it was going that way well, I, to be honest, I feel like it's not necessarily a romance. I mm. think he, rem- he death remembers everybody, and when she talks about her, what was supposed to be her husband, Rufus, he, yeah. He, Rufus, yeah. He he goes, oh yes, I remember that person. And it's like, well, this is kind of my fault. I think he feels some responsibility towards her right. for the way her life is, and I think, in some ways, towards the end of the book, that's her him making it up to her. In lots of ways, it's like this was my job, but I think the longer he's not at the job, the more he feels empathy and the more he feels the darker side of his work. Like mm. when he's um, helping out on the farm and he has to help put down rat poison and kill a chicken, and he's never been on that side of death. He's always been after that happened. He's not okay. responsible. He's cleaning up. Yeah, there's, there's... he yeah he's the he's the person who comes and collects them. Afterwards, not the person who does the deed. Yeah. Driving the meat Uber, yeah. not, not yeah. running the abattoir. Yeah, yeah. The, there's that line about how it's the difference between being a thief and um, stealing by finding that something that someone's lost. Mm. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's yeah. an interesting way to put it. Mm. But uh, he takes the job and he uh, starts working on the harvest um, initially by cutting each blade of grass. <laughs> One at a time with the scythe. They're really fast still. I mean, um, I think he I think he might have almost chosen that job simply because it was something he already had skills in. He was like, oh, here's a field. This is where they use scythes. Mm. I can use a scythe. Th- yeah. this, this is my core competency here. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of necessary for the title of the book, which is a pun on Repo Man. The yeah. Film. I mean, it's not um, like Rocket Man from, by Elton John. No. <laughs> Although it is kind of lonely yeah. out in death's domain. So <laughs> that does also fit. I, I just, I really enjoyed those bits of the book where he's just hanging out on the farm and he's, you know, being Bill Dore and trying to make friends by learning how to be hilariously crap at things instead of really good at them, which is his natural inclination. And can we just quickly talk about his name? So he sort of sees as this guy, she asked for his name and then he's like, Mr. Sky, she said, no one's called that. And so he looks at the door and he goes, Mr. Dore. And she's like, oh, you got to be like a Bill or a Tom or a Bruce, one of those. He's like, yes. And he just is like, she's like, which one? She's like, one of those. And he's like, which one? She's the first one. So... I understand door because he's like at death's door quite literally mm. and so like he's death door but then I was like halfway through this book I was like build or builder but what's the meaning of that if is that intentional that it's supposed to sound like builder 
Like he's mm. building a new life, he's building a new personality, or is that just a coincidence? I, well, look, I I sort of thought it was just it was one of those gags where he's going to get a dumb pseudonym in that classic sitcom fashion. Like it's happened to so many characters where they've like suddenly got to make up a different real name and they just sort of start saying things they can see until someone accepts their answer, you know. Um, oh, but like because the two bits work together and I was wondering if that's an accident or on purpose. Mm, that's because a good question. Tom Dor would be like per- t- totally fine as well. Like I think that would just be... Yeah. Funny, but Bildor is also a word. Hmm, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about it, Sarah? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I kind of was thinking more in enjoying the subtext of um, Miss Flitworth obviously knowing that she's not getting his real name. Oh, yeah. And kind yeah. of knowing even who he is to an extent, kind of instinctually understanding it. So to me, it's like just you need to pick something. To, to me, I'm not sure there's any greater significance there. Hmm. And she's used to shady men with her dad being a smuggler and her Rufus being kind of a smuggler as well. Yeah, so. yeah, she's just like, you need to pick something. It's not necessarily... Yeah, she's like, I'm fine with you not using a real name, but you've got to give me a name because I'm not going to call you Mysterious Stranger, <laughs> you know, which is not what she says. But I think that's, yeah, that's where yeah. she's coming from, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't, I, yeah, I, that's, I hadn't thought about Bildor, but... Um, as as builder, but I I don't I don't I didn't figure that was I don't he, think there's significance there. He doesn't really build anything. He's mostly for life. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it's true. He starts having dreams and all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I do like that he starts to have dreams. I think that's cool. And I like that he's like, wait, someone came by and stole a bunch of time while I was waiting for sleep to happen. <laughs> You're like, no, that that's how sleep works. <laughs> I was waiting yeah. to experience sleep, and suddenly it's six hours later. Yeah, it was interesting how he suddenly became able to do those human things even though he's still i mean there's there's a quite a lot of ambiguity about how he works in that sort of weird in between time where he's not he's technically not death anymore he's been laid off but he's also not ceased to exist he's absolutely still a skeleton skeleton or skellington as the <laughs> yeah. as the little girl likes to say yeah that was great that I'm, man's a skellington i've had <laughs> had so many conversations with kids about that kind of stuff in my job where where essentially my job is to lie to them um about stories uh but but for fun for fun purposes and some of them just you know instead of buying into it like you know oh yeah well i want to believe that's true they go is it really true that there's a trapdoor that goes down a hundred stories underneath this building i don't think that's true it's a lie like i was that kid yeah yeah oh those kids are the they're lovely. Those kids are lovely. Just in case any of them or their parents are listening, they're well, lovely. They'll grow up and do their own holocaust or or whatnot. No, no suspension of disbelief at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No suspension but, of disbelief. Oh, oh. oh okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Pay that. Um, that is happening. But you know, back in Ankh-Morpork, while this is going on, um, there's, life energy is wreaking havoc. There's weird stuff happening. Screws are unscrewing themselves and flying around the room. Furniture is moving. Um, clothes are running down the street, and pretty soon uh, it started to affect the palace. And the patrician calls for the wizards to come and have a look and check it out. But not just the wizards. The wizards arrive and find that the priests of the town have already arrived as well, because they are also going to be consulted. Uh, and they start immediately arguing with each other. And so Arch-Chancellor Ridcully steps aside with the High Priest of Blind Io, who is the leader of the priests of Ankh-Morpork, and they have a bit of a word to each other because they seem to know each other rather well. Yeah, and um, I like how the priest is giving... A, a bit of backstory on what the gods have been up to and it's like a previously on this soap opera kind yeah, of vibe. <laughs> that was so good. I had a note about this soap opera thing as well. That was so good. But um turns out 
um, Rid Cully and this person know each other because they are brothers. Yeah. I thought that was so nice. It's, it's such a good little kick because it's like, it's a normal conversation. And yes, they obviously know each other. But then it's like, oh, we should probably go see mum. Yeah. And it, and it, then suddenly, like, it just snaps in. And it's like, yeah, siblings. Yeah. 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 It was, and I think we've all had some kind of conversation like that with our siblings. Yes, absolutely. I'm an only child. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we can have that conversation later if you like. No. It, it, oh. it, it's that feeling of joint responsibility. Yeah. I mean, my parents are currently overseas, and my brother and I are currently having discussions about making sure that all the plants are alive when they get back. Mm. But speaking yeah. of joint responsibility, no one in the meeting is willing to take responsibility for what's going on because it's not magic. It's not sort of the alchemist guild blowing things up. It's, it's not, not any not of gods. The- yeah. Yeah. No, everyone's at a bit of a loss about it. And veterinary, yeah. to him, it's like, that's not good enough. Yeah. Do better. Yeah. And what- Figure out what's going on. And meanwhile, though, what's on veterinary's desk? It's a snow globe. Oh, yes. Uh, These have mysteriously turned up in a warehouse in Ankh-Morpork, which just so happens to be owned by one cut-me-own-throat-dibbler. <laughs> uh, and everyone who sees them thinks they're quite beautiful. They're these, when we first are, are introduced to them, they're not actually described, but eventually we find out they are. They're a snow globe, the typical kind of half-dome with glass with little bits of snowflakes in them. And inside each one is quite a staggeringly impressive replica of some uh, bit of Ankh-Morpork. And on the bottom is written greetings from Ankh-Morpork, but in really messy writing as yeah. if someone was sort of copying letters down without having really seen them before. And he sells all of them. Yeah, well, I mean, good old Seamot Dibbler. Doesn't he go and ask Colin for legal advice? Oh, yeah. he does. Yeah. Is it like, is it okay? It, yeah. It's like, so I, I didn't put these here, but they're in my spot. <laughs> yeah. Can I sell them? Yeah. And Colin being Colin is like, ah. And Dibbler just takes it and runs with it. Yeah. yeah and in fact, Colin becomes his first customer. <laughs> yeah. He's like, that's oh, right. Yeah. 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 He, he just about pockets one, doesn't he? Yeah. Wanders yeah. Off. There's evidence. Yes, evidence. Yeah, and then Dibbler's like, oh, that'll be uh, five pence, please. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? Oh, okay. Yeah, and they've gotten all over the city, but also they mysteriously disappear at inopportune times, mm. um, and everyone forgets about them once they bring them home. Just like real snow globes. Yeah. This is something that I really love about Pratchett, that he can make things so strange and so familiar at the same time. It's like, mm. of course, once you bring the snow globe home, you forget about it. You know, you put it in a cupboard, you put it away. Yeah. But you can't throw it away because it's a souvenir. That's right. Yeah, and probably someone gave it to you. And I, I thought there was a nice sort of um, crossover there because um, later on on the farm, Miss um, Flitworth invites Bill Dore in to the parlour. Says it's cold out there, you know, come in and have a, have a drink and I'll make some scones and stuff. Um, and he's sitting in there and it's just full of stuff from all kinds, all over the knick-knacks. world. Just knickknacks and souvenirs because, you know, her father and her partner were both well, travelling men, shall we say, <laughs> euphemistically. Um, and so they brought back stuff from all of the places that they'd been all over the world or sent it back to her. And there's that nice sort of indicator that, you know, this is something that happens on the disc world anyway, but now is this sort of weird modern round world version that's intruding in. And it's that, you know, it's that classic Pratchett thing of having something from our world intruding on the disc world again, but in this time in a really mysterious and sinister way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's handled really, really well, the mystery of it, because at first he won't even tell you that there's snow globes. And then when he does tell you that there's snow globes, he doesn't really tell you why there's snow globes. (laughs) And it does, like, you can really only make the connections, I feel, once 
the characters in the book make the connections. I think he purposely leaves out the things that would help you figure it out and leaves it mysterious, which I think is just really impressive as a technique, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I found out that the cloth draped over a back of a chair to keep it from being dirtied up. It's called a maracassar. Anti-maracassar. Anti-maracassar. Is that what that is? Yeah, I looked it up and I was like... You know why it's called that? It's because they used to wear a lot of oil in their wigs and in their hair. And one of the main kinds of oil was maracassar oil. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. And so the idea was that this this little doily that goes on the back of the chair would save it from being soiled by all of the oils that were in your hair or in your wig. So oiled. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. What grief. And so it gets doiled. That's just very good. Yeah. So that's um that's that's what those are all about. Wait, is that why they're called doilies? Because they like absorb oil? I don't know, maybe. Could be. But see, if I was at work having this sort of bizarre conversation, I would say, let's look this up. It's okay. That's what the show notes are for. Mm. Yes. There'll be a full explanation, listeners. Yes. And if there's not, I'll want to know why. And if you <laughs> haven't been reading the show notes, they're actually very good read. There's like jokes and things in them too. That's so, true. Yeah. But Bill's getting to know um, Miss, I keep wanting to say Flitwick, Flit, Flitworth better. Yes. And he's also getting to know the townsfolk better. Like he goes down the pub mm-hmm. and he's not sure how to make small talk. So he remembers what he's supposed to say, which is, I will buy everyone a drink. And, <laughs> and then he starts playing um pool or whatnot but he accidentally plays it perfectly then he realizes he's supposed to get things wrong so he sort of becomes the the group buffoon um d- putting darts in the wrong thing in someone's hat landing it in someone's beer mm-hmm. and he's just glad that no one's noticing that it takes actually a lot more skill to mess up so badly yeah, yeah. I, I do like that i yeah. did really like that line that's when the girl comes out and says that man's a skellington <laughs> yeah that was great actually going into that bit um there's a thing that pratchett does several times in this book and it's a technique he's used in other books too where he does a very cinematic thing where he's shot matching. So he'll say something or describe the shape of something in one, the end of one section. And then at the start of the next section, he'll describe something that's a similar shape or have the same sort of line. And he does that going into this first bit with build or making friends from the bit where he's talking about the priests and Mrs. Cake. I really enjoyed that. It happened several times in this book and it's just quite pleasing. <laughs> so now that you've mentioned Mrs. Cake though. <laughs> oh yeah. Because um, she's been sort of – was she alluded to one in ones before this or is this the one, all the ones we skipped ahead to? Because I think it's in – I think Mrs. Cake is referred to in Men at Arms when they look at the post office motto. Yeah, don't uh, ask us about Mrs. Cake. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, which is obviously not the same Mrs. Cake because that motto is very, very ancient. But, yeah, it's, it's – I like that. Must run in the family. Mm. Yeah. Mrs. So. Cakeness must run in the family. <laughs> yeah, the ancient Mrs. Cake is just oh, – Once um, in future Mrs. Cake. But, but, I mean, Mrs. Cake, it, she's quite a character. Uh, I, I mean, how do we feel about Mrs. Cake? How would we describe Mrs. Cake? She's one of those terrifying, wonderful old women. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't really love the way she interacts with Ludmilla. Mm, mm. She's bad with Ludmilla. That's yeah, true. Yeah, like, it's that, it's that slightly mum slash grandma thing of not recognising that the child's okay with being a wolf mm, yeah. <laughs> she's okay and she's like i can pick up the teacup mum." it's like no no you'll you'll explode it don't do that yeah like very overprotective yeah there, it's not that there's not love there there's just this doesn't quite believe in her it's mm. too paternalistic yeah 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 like um, get away from the curtains the neighbors might see you like there's a bit of shame but not quite but not i think I she even says it at one point she goes she's my shame I yeah. think at one point she even says that. Yeah, and then there's the Lud Miller's like, yeah, that's all right. Like she just sort of takes it good humouredly. I think it's kind of described yeah. as, and it's like, oh, that's a bit rough. Yeah, because yeah. I would have hoped that it'd been like she's not ashamed of her. She's worried that other people will treat her badly. But yeah, mm. you're right. And, so. and I guess, well, I 
I guess the only thing is, I'm not sure that she necessarily means that she's ashamed of her. I think she's like, I know I'm supposed to be ashamed of her because she's not what you would expect in a daughter. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and you'd think that she'd be rather more broad-minded because she's a medium. She speaks to the dead all the time, and she's the terror of all of the religions in Ankh-Morpork uh, because she just rubs them the wrong way. Because talking to people after they're dead kind of defeats the purpose of telling people something good or bad will happen to them according whether they sort of follow your religion. So there's like there's an interesting tension there. I think but- it's also because she like turns up and destroys their churches. Like not on purpose. She turns up and all she'll start coming to the services and she'll start being the person who brings the cake and prepares the readings and mm. all the other all stuff. All the flowers and yeah. yeah, and then she falls out with the priest or the priestess or whoever. No, she actually she doesn't hang out with the priestesses, does she? No, she no. doesn't like priestesses. That no. was a bit mm, not yeah. women. No. She's a bit old fashioned. She basically becomes a, a pillar of the community and then when she doesn't like the community anymore, she withdraws that pillar and then the building collapses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think they all sort of live in terror that she's gonna turn up one day, make their church run wonderfully efficiently. Have an argument and leave. Yeah. And like what you were saying before about how it's odd that she treats Ludmilla this way despite her own sort of precognition powers, I think that's because Mrs. Cake is the kind of person who sees her experience as the universal experience. What she mm. is is normal. Everyone else not having precognition is weird. So therefore she doesn't see it as something. She can't quite get outside herself. There's yeah. just, in Mrs. Cake's head, there is only Mrs. Cake. <laughs> and maybe a tiny bit of room for one man bucket, her supposed spirit guide. Yeah. Who's a weird kind of. <laughs> oh dear. He's a problem, isn't he? He's a, he's a, yeah. I, I don't know. How do we, how do we, how do we feel about one man bucket? I mean, <sighs> his, his name is that classic joke about being named after the first thing your mother saw. And it is an old, that is an old joke. Like I am, I, this is probably the first time I would have encountered it. He says, yeah, I feel sorry for my twin brother. Oh, he's two dogs fighting. He's like, oh, two dogs fighting. He would love to be called two dogs fighting. Hey, you're like, okay, all right. We get, we get the joke. Uh, but <laughs> Two it's, dogs playing poker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you just made all the cards soggy now. Um, Ew. But, uh, but yeah. He's, oh, no, because of the bucket of water. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. okay. It's yeah, okay. That's, that's where I went. <laughs> Oh, God. (laughs) Elizabeth. Um, Hey, I wasn't the one that said, oh, no. (laughs) uh, Okay, fair enough. Oh, Uh, dear. But, but yeah, she she communicates with the spirit world um, and uh, talks to her spirit guide. And he he informs her that there's just loads of spirits there. And they're all saying crap like, feed the cat and just, oh, there's a bit of money up the chimney. He's like, oh, yeah, people don't normally bother with this rubbish. It's sort of like she's waiting for you and it's nice here. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, because like, these aren't people with unresolved business. They're people tell- who haven't been – the bus hasn't shown up. Yeah, it's yes. – tell my daughter-in-law she's not allowed to have the good linens or, and stuff. It's like – Yeah. Um, and so she knows what's going on. There's too much life energy around uh, and it's – and people aren't dying and it's causing this buildup. And she goes to say, well, she's got to tell somebody and she realizes probably I need to tell the wizards. Uh, we'll go tell them. They ignore her because she turns up and they don't know who she is. But they very soon afterwards decide to perform the Rite of Ashkente, <laughs> the the most commonly performed bit of magic in all of this world books. I was going to say, it's like books. their favorite thing to do. Um, it, and they always complain about doing it and they always talk about how they can do it more efficiently with like just, you know, 10 cc's of mouse blood. And in this book, someone goes, oh, you don't even need that. You can do it with a fresh egg. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And uh, they, um, they give a nod to that thing you said in a previous episode where they finally cottoned on to they just think he... He stands in the circle for the look of the thing. Yeah, yeah. At that time that he was just outside being like, what are we waiting for? (laughs) (laughs) 
just <laughs> playing a prank on them. That was great. Uh, but Death does not show up. Instead, one of the auditors shows up. And Rid Kelly tries to ask it some questions and it basically says, look, there's been a bit of a disruption. Normal services will resume <laughs> soon. And it was like a, getting a, you know, a message when you try to call Centrelink or something. Yeah, it's quite you just depressing. get the little robo, robo cue. Yeah. Mm. Um, but they call do, is important to us. Yeah. Um, and they don't figure out what's going on because of what they're told by the auditor. They sort of just sort of put two and two together after realizing that there isn't a death to be contacted right now. So they're like, hang on, if there's no death then what's happening to all the people who die? And where's all the life energy got? Wait a minute. That's where all this life energy is coming from. And they kind of figure it out. But let's not worry about that. Let's just get concerned about the shopping trolleys that they're showing. Up I know it's, it's connected, true. but like it, this is where we were talking about before. It seems like it splits into two books. And I saw a discarded one on my way here and I was kind of like, oh, no. It's a bit, yeah, I, you know what? I was, if they made it into a film particularly or a TV show, it would do for shopping trolleys what that episode of Doctor Who Blink did for statues. Like, you'd be like, oh, they're creepy and they're everywhere. Or um, what the movie Hereditary has done to having family members. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no. I, I don't think I should watch that. I have family members. Um <laughs> Well, one man bucket's got an idea about them later on, but Windle is sort of, he goes back to his room. He's like, I'm going to need some money and stuff, my diary and things. So he digs up his like floorboard secret compartment, but there he finds some of these snow globes in there. Then he finds a few little bits of broken glass and he finds a sort of weird wheel. He's like, oh, I don't know what this is. And then the trolleys start showing up all over the shop. And the gardener so is very pleased about it initially, like the dwarf oh, yeah. gardener. Modo like, the gardener. Yeah, he's great. I yeah. enjoy him. And, and he, as, almost as much as he enjoys compost. Yeah. There's this deep world weariness to him. He isn't even all that bothered when his lawn gets destroyed. He's like, mm. yep, this is how things go. This is where I work. Mm. I'll just, you know, add more stuff to the compost pile, go to my happy place. And he, he see, he's really into it in this book. He's like, oh, you see a lot of interesting things in this job this time around. Because he used to work in the palace and it wasn't as interesting. We should probably have a fresh start. So um, maybe we should talk about the Fresh Start Club. <laughs> what a good idea. Because while all this, um, yeah, this trolley business is going on, Windle has gone off to a meeting of the Fresh Start Club, which turns out to be organized by one Mr. Reginald Shoe. Ah, <laughs> Reg Shoe. Yeah, what a good working class name that is. Good old Reg. He chooses a lot of the like normal sounding names just for the associations we have with them. And so Reg Shoe is called Reg because it just sounds like someone that you trust to run like the local bowls club or something. Yeah, he's who you expect to find in a small English town quietly running a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Like Reg from the Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Who got horribly bullied, I realize the older I get. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, you know, in our childhoods, there was the bill and it was just the bill. And now, you know, you're older and you go, ooh, the bill's actually a lot more complex than I thought it was. Yeah. Especially when it went from like the 20 minute episodes that were self contained to like the full on soap opera. Mm. Welcome to our podcast spin off, The Bill. <laughs> <laughs> now, sh- oh, there must be a podcast about The Bill. That's going in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's, is this one, Bill Door? <laughs> There's thousands of episodes of The Bill. There's, if there's not a podcast, someone somewhere is doing something wrong. The, the, the people in the Fresh Start Club oh, are quite a, oh, I quite love a bunch, them. aren't they? Um, let's, let's run through them. We've got... Um, Arthur and Doreen Wilkins, I mean. I mean, the Count and Countess, <laughs> not far out um, um, Not far out Yeah, Yeah, uh, Arthur. I, I couldn't quite get her... I was trying to figure out what her accent should sound like, and I kind of could see... I think he did such a good job of writing it in such a way that you can see what she's trying to get at, but it doesn't quite work. Yes. Uh, Turns out she's not a vampire at all. She's just taking an interest in her husband's hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, that, that they've got to build a moat. 
Mm. And that rather than the plaster ducks, there's plaster bats. Yeah. I can like, <laughs> I, I just, yeah. I can really picture their living room. It's like very English kitsch. But everything's bats. Yeah. I kind of imagine them like um, from keeping up appearances, like Hyacinth and Richard Bouquet or Bucket. Oh, and yeah. it's kind of like if he if if Richard had been bitten by a vampire, this yeah. is exactly how it would have oh, gone down. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> now I'm going to picture them as those actors and, as well. And, you know, she'd be wearing the little scarf tied around her neck. Only it would have I don't know little drawings of blood droplets or something on it. It wouldn't. She would have that same very sweet face of I am getting things done. Because so, like she, she is described like quite Patricia Routledge-ish. Like she, she yeah. looks to like a classic English lady, but she's trying to look like a Transylvanian, like vampiress, and it just doesn't quite work because she's got like the short hair, and but she's trying to make it look long. It's just great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's so good. All oh. of the fresh start are just so well written and so individual. I want them to have ten books to themselves. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's very easy when you create like a group of people like that to make them all sound the same particularly when they're all supposed to be in the same club when i think you know there's so many distinct personalities there and the, you could have 10 books about just about all of them so well, mr ixalite mr ixalite yeah the socially yeah. anxious only banshee left in the world that they sort of screaming on the rooftop <laughs> sort of like sheepishly shoves a note that says ooh, yeah, underneath yeah. the door and i love that that's part of the cover of your edition of the yeah. book liz um the other ones that get a bit of screen time, so to speak, are um, obviously Reg, but also Schleppel, the bogeyman, who nobody's quite sure what he looks like because he's sort of under a chair and you can't <laughs> see him. Uh, Lupine, mm. who, I mean, he's recycling a name there. Like, Lupine wants us the name of the villain in Guards, Guards. So it's like, uh, didn't we just use this a few books ago? Um Maybe it was just too good of an opportunity yeah. to pass up. Yeah, and I guess if you are a wolf who turns into a wolf man, um, you don't have a human name, so you might as well pick something that means wolf. Yeah. Do we think he's a were-man? Is he a wolf? He'd have to be what? a wolfware. Wolfware? Wolfware. That's that what that's is? what they're called in Dungeons & Dragons, yeah. Okay. Wolfwares. Because were is an old word for man. Okay. So um. werewolf just means man-wolf, and um, a wolfware is then a, a wolf man. Like a reverse one. Yeah, a reverse one. Incidentally, werewolf backwards is actually flower ooh. I just I like that concept and there's that that whole sort of you know, him and Ludmilla. We didn't say what Ludmilla's deal was, um, Mrs. Cake's daughter, but she is also a person who turns into a wolf person. Yeah. Um uh, but she's from the human side. Uh although they don't it's all a bit of a mystery, they're not quite sure why, because she'd never been bitten by one and she was pretty sure that Mr. Cake, God rest his soul, was not one either. But it might be a genetic throwback or something. Yeah, it was well, uncle a back. There, yeah, there was a talk of a of a relative. I, to be honest, I get the feeling that Mrs. Cake knows exactly how Ludmilla is Ludmilla. Oh, yeah. right. And it just like it's that she's my shame thing again. It's like best not to talk about it, dear. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's like maybe it's the milkman's a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Yes. Um, but there's a couple of members who never really get mentioned again because there's Droll, the ghoul. Um, where, where Lupine's giving Windle the advice. He's like, she offers you a pie. Don't eat it. He's like, why? Is, is, he, is she cooking human remains? He's like, no, she's just not a very good cook, <laughs> uh, which I thought was hilarious. And there's, um, Mr. Gorper, which I don't know. I don't know if he's really explained, but he's in there somewhere. Um, he's, he just disappeared completely from my memory. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause he's mentioned that he sort of never gets mentioned again. I don't think it's even said what kind of undead person he is. But then they just like choose the key players from that meeting and just take them off on a research adventure to the library, which is always more exciting in the Discord. Well, no, 
Going to the library in real world is also very exciting. I take that back. That's true. I mean, it's that said, there's no orangutan in our local libraries. There, that's no. kind of that sad. we know of. They could I have really got to go have a better look. Yeah. Maybe there was an orangutan in the library who was accidentally turned into a librarian by means <laughs> of a magical accident, and now they're a human librarian. But yeah, he decides um, to to figure out what's going on because he also goes to see Mrs. Cake. They sort of have a Wizard of Oz thing where they keep picking up people along the way on the road to Mrs. Cake. Yeah, and then mm. like this ragtag group of misfits shows up at Mrs. Cake's house. They have a bit of a chat. They do a, a seance kind of thing. They find out what's going on and then they head to the library. Well, this all happens after Miss Flipworth figures out what Death's deal is. Mm. And he's getting all sort of emo about his mortality. And then it all comes to a head when there's a fire in the town near Miss Flipworth's farm. And here's where I'd like to share a theory that is ridiculous and definitely not intentional. There's kind of like a Doors theme in this book because like he's Mr. Do- as in Do- the Doors, the band. Yeah. Because it's like Mr. Door like, is death. And then mm-hmm. there is later on the bogeyman gets given his own door to hide behind so he can move through the world. True. And then like just after Bill Door is accepted by the community, there's a fire. As in like, come on, baby, light my. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sometimes you listen to music while you're writing and sometimes it gets into your subconscious. So I'm not going to overtly say anything, but you know. And speaking of doors, um, the inn no longer has one because it's on fire and everyone is out except for the little girl who has spotted that this guy is not a guy. He's a skeleton. That's right. But, but he doesn't want to mess with things because death has a plan. And he knows that meddling with the fate of one person can destroy the world, as previously explored in the book Mort. Yeah. And as you remember, Mort, the person sucks. Um, as yes. this yes. Is that the important part that <laughs> yes. we need to remember? But, but, but I, yeah, I think death comes at it from this, this is how it's supposed to go. And mm. and then Miss Flitworth looks at him and is like, uh, this is not how we be people. Mm. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't just look at him. She gives him a slap across the face. Oh, yes, mm. of course she does. Yeah. That must um, have hurt her hand. Yeah, well, she's, yeah. How did she even reach him? I, I picture her as this incredibly tiny person, him being incredibly tall. Mm. How did she even reach his Ooh, face to slap it? Anime Matrix moments were like freezes and like all the... F- the shooting forward, like with the fly kick with the hands. Yeah. And there's also people talking about, is it the rum barrels that are starting to bubble up? So there's like the threat of explosion, like every sort of yeah. fire storyline. And there's that thing where it says, you know, the thing about rum is that it doesn't boil for very long. Mm. <laughs> um, and it explodes. And then, you know, Bill Dor comes out of the fire and it's kind of cut, it sort of cuts past a lot of the action there. And it's kind of assumed, but it, it cuts to him taking her into the bedroom at Miss Flitworth's place and laying her down on the bed saying, no, she's going to be all right, but don't let anybody take anything out of this room and I don't want any witches and I don't want any wizards. There's no magic. Um, and he's very insistent about that. And, and that incident is what makes her realize what's going on with him. Mm. She's like, I knew I recognized you. Right. And, and he says, you know, I'm going to die. And, and also he says, I've been given the very poorly written note of the bench because <laughs> <laughs> Mr. X like gives him a note and he's like, Oh, okay. And, when he's trying to explain who's fired him, that's when she like sort of goes, oh, it's like the revenuers. Yeah, I knew. We all thought you had something to do with taxes. And he's like, no, not taxes. <laughs> the other one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, I don't know if you've seen the film Meet Joe Black about death deciding to take a bit of a holiday and go down to earth and inhabit the body of someone who's just died. So Who happens to be Brad Pitt. Out. Just happens to be Brad Pitt. Um, Solid choice. Yeah. yeah. There's also a thing in that where um, everyone assumes he's like, works in taxation because he knows like no i'm the other one you know that that's his sort of thing it's kind of like a late 90s thing like that city of angels like there was a bit of sort of 
what if the the immortals came down and did the thing? Yeah. yeah. I also always get um, Meet Joe Black confused with Mighty Joe Young, which came, which came at it <laughs> around the same Isn't there an ape in that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's oh, an ape in this too. So, oh, you know, maybe it's like the crossover we didn't know we wanted. Yeah, they are not at all the same thing, uh, <laughs> thankfully. He tells her what's going on and she's like, auditors, we hate them around here. Why didn't you say so? Well, I'll help you fight them. Let's do something about it. He's like, oh, do you think I should? He says, yeah. And he's like, all right, then I will. And then he goes to sharpen his scythe on literally anything that's available. One of the reasons that Death decides he's going to fight back is that he's stopped the girl from dying by sharing what's left of his life with her. She's living on borrowed time. Yeah. And there's this great line where Miss Flitworth says, I didn't know people could give people some of their life. And Death says it happens all the time. Mm. And it was one of those lines where it means something so deep and Pratchett, what are you doing? I know this is what I actually really love about Pratchett, that he's, he's making the jokes and the bizarre and the wondrous. And then he'll hit you right in the core humanity, basically. And Mm. just go, this is, this is what life is about. This is what people are about. And, and it's amazing thing to do. Yeah. As a fantasist, yeah. As a writer at all, mm. yeah. He's he he knows he knows what it's about. So he decides he's gonna yeah he's gonna try and do something about it and try and sharpen up a scythe while he's doing his preparations. This is where Windle goes to meet Mrs. Cake mm-hmm. and they have another chat with One Man Bucket, who tells them what he thinks is going on. The little snow globes are city eggs. And that they're hatching out into a mobile intermediate sort of larval form, but then they'll become cities. And Wendell's like, oh, okay, well, that's weird, but I guess that kind of makes sense. And this is the main connection between the two storylines that are going on. The reason for the trolley life forms to show up is that there is this extra abundance of life energy because there's no death to take it away. How do we feel about that connection? Is it a strong connection? Is it is it satisfying? I enjoyed both storylines, but I feel like they could have been very ha- easily separated into different books. But then you'd have like you'd have to have something to bulk out the other one. But I'd be very happy to see Death go and do some more town things, like sort of go to the local get fair, binky. get Binky reshoed, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I do love that bit early on in the book. Where where Miss Flitworth remarks, it's like he's never seen grass before about Binky, and it's like oh, Binky's happy. That's mm. I like that. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I enjoyed them both, but if anything, I felt like the trolley one didn't need any more space. Like I felt like we got everything we needed to know about that, except a really satisfying explanation of where it came from. Like the, the idea that just there was just life energy, and so it just happened. Because all the other things that happened are things that were already there, being animated by extra life energy. They weren't something that sort of was spontaneously created. And I was like, well, I wanted a bit more about where did that come from? How did that work? But the the thing, the thing for me was that there was so much of the trolley storyline that I just felt it was taking a space away from the yes, death storyline. you want mm. to go back to that nice peaceful place where they're just doing people things. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd completely forgotten about the shopping trolleys. Me too. When I came back to it because it's not in the blurb, it's not on the cover of the book, it's not the thing that Reaper Man suggests to you. Um, and we could still have had Windle and the Misfits without the shopping trolleys. Yeah. They, so I love that. They still could have been involved and it could have been something more about, I don't know, it could have been something else. I, I don't, I, it, yeah, I have such mixed feelings about it because I also love it. <laughs> like I well, just love I, the weirdness I, of it. I saw it, sort of, it's like, I look at this and it's like, it was published in 91, right? Mm. And my main memory of 90s shopping centers to sort of, to spoil things a little bit is what you get at the final stage of your city egg. It's a, it's a mall. It's a big 
beige mall. And it's like, that's what they all looked like when we were kids and, and, and teenagers. And I feel like that maybe it was just something that was on his mind almost at the time, that it was like this sudden springing up of big beige 90s shopping malls. And I think it would have been, you know, it, up As an until... Infection. Yeah, well, I think... Because they'd been around in America for a lot longer. Yeah. And I think that probably the 90s is where you started to see these things cropping up in the UK mm-hmm. and Australia, like yeah. more so like and sort of supplanting the older style kind of shopping centres. And it's in like truckers as well. Like it's a big... It's a thing he's clearly thought about to work across to two yeah. books yeah because the old school department store closing down to be replaced by a shopping mall shopping malls are, are terrible places they're just the worst beigey yeah. blandness but there's also like this strange appeal like because as as we jump to later there's the music they all start hearing the music and except for the the, the fresh start club who are sort of like checking it out because they're like something's wrong everyone else is kind of drawn to it kind of like mm. it's, morrison it's, it's, and his uh, trained rodents pretended to be but actually like there's a siren call of banal sales yeah like it, it's actively mentioned as a parasitical form of life drawing people off the normal life of the city yeah and that's certainly how they work in the states like they built them away from places and it, it, there's a great episode of 99 percent invisible which is a podcast about design which i'll link to in the show notes because i think it's very um, pertinent here and it, it talks about that sort of the, the Gruen transfer effect and all that sort of thing where it, it, they were designed to make people buy things but also to make them feel comfortable in these places. They were supposed to be a community space as well, but then that kind of got perverted by the way that they were set up and they were built away from city centres and away from population centres. which They're meant designed people, to keep you there. Yeah, well, people had to drive to them and then there was nothing else to do while you were there because you were stuck there until you got back in your car to drive all the way home. And there's the feeling in the book as well like that they, they kill community because they talk about like the the city dying once it's drawn out. When I was in Ireland, a man that I met um, was telling me that Lidl, which is a chain there, mm. their strategy to become the dominant store in Ireland would be to go to a town, build a Lidl at each end of the main strip so that it was convenient to go to one of the two Lidls rather than the, the corner store in between. And mm. when that store eventually closed, then they'd close one of the Lidls. Right. It's like, which is kind of like a, what a parasite or like a invading yeah. force would do. Like it's just starve out the people there and then yeah, that's creepy. chill out. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, this is making me think of Ikea, to be honest. Because mm. if, like, if you really look at an Ikea, that is designed for you to walk in one end and to take a very long time to get out. They want you to be hungry by the time they get you get to the food hall. And then they want you to be ready to buy things by the time you get to the hall with the actual stuff in it. It's that sort of sense of that a shopping mall is designed to get you in and keep you there. Yeah. What would an Ikea egg look like? Because it wouldn't be a snow globe. Like, uh, I think it would be a small plush toy maybe. I, I, I'm kind of picturing like millions of little wooden dowels that hold the, <laughs> you know. The, or a tiny lamp maybe. Yeah, I, like pouring, you just pour them everywhere and maybe half of them wouldn't survive, but like like maggots, but dowels. Oh, yeah. Do you know what amazing. I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe it'd be like one of those charming toys you get at a Christmas market, you know, where it's like a, a wooden man with all bendy joints. Yeah. And he's standing on a round thing and underneath it you press a button and that actually oh, makes all the strings holding him up loosen oh, yes. and they force to one side. Yeah, they yeah. go, he I comes back up. Those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. really fun for like an hour and then you put it in the drawer. You forget about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, it's going to transform into what will be the I intermediate stage. I think I can sell those. 
Well, yeah, what would the intermediate stage? Oh, I have to be a Billy bookcase. Yes. Yes, they're oh, everywhere. My right. house is in trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's infested. <laughs> yeah, just going to be – wake up and you'll be in Ikea. <laughs> There's at least one in this room right now. Yeah. Um, oh, I have two in my house. We're yeah. All, we're all going to die. Um, well, look, but, but let's, let's bring it back a little bit. Sorry, let me say Dikea. Okay. <laughs> okay. And now um, let's go back to the book. Okay. Well, what I wanted to say is that w- this is also the part of the book that goes back to that point I was making before where the, the parasitical shopping mall life form comes out of nowhere. Like it's, it's spontaneously created in that cellar whereas the other things that are infused with the extra life energy are things that are kind of already there like pants like like the pants that fly down the street like the furniture <laughs> oh yeah where the red cullies are talking about did you see the label like it's seven dollars and got an extra pair of trousers <laughs> so good um but but also there's um you know the curses red cully's curses that whenever he curses because he's also magical because he's a wizard but the, <gasps> when he the life force yeah brings them into like existence which is great so he has like all the all the jolly swears that aren't quite swears like when he goes dang it or or darn it all to heck (laughs) yeah 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 and he actually says poot which is like my brother used to say and he's he's a big pratchett reader and now i'm wondering if this is where he got it from or whether he got it from somewhere else but um there's that and there's also the compost heaps moto's compost heaps which he's been feeding all kinds of weird stuff but then they come to life or one of them does anyway uh, and tries to eat its way into the university and the wizards eventually blow it. Well, <laughs> Red Cully blows it up with his wow, wow sauce, which turns out is a real thing. Um, and in one of, I think it's in Nanny Og's cookbook, there's a, oh, a no. recipe based on an, the original wow, wow sauce, which was like a, a condiment from the 1800s. Um, I don't know if it's anything like the one described in the book. Probably, hopefully not. Or you'll well, be in trouble. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, if you had a bottle of it, you would try and find a compost heap and see if you could blow it up, wouldn't you? Right, well, Tabasco directly. So, like, actually, his his tray of condiments sounded very appealing to me. Yeah, because oh, are you an are you an auto condimenter? It's just uh. con- <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> No, no, I was going to say no comment, no condiment. No. No <laughs> but um, um, I had a note in my notes about this section of the book, which just says Rid Cully's sick burn, which is where they're talking about the compost. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, I don't know if it is that dangerous. All it's doing is like moving around slowly, eating <laughs> things. And Rid Cully goes, put a pointy hat on it and it'll be a bloody faculty member. <laughs> yes, nice burn. So true. So true. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so the wizards are all sort of forced into action to, try and take down all the living things mm. uh, meanwhile death doesn't have a replacement yet but other things do he's kind of split oh, into yeah. a whole bunch of different deaths so there's like one like there's the one we mentioned earlier like the death for trees which is yep. just the sound of axes yeah mm. what else was there the oh, death of mayflies oh which is up. like a giant black scale trout yeah. <laughs> yeah um that was great um there's the oh, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them described, and they're, they're all trying to figure out what form they should take because it, normally they don't need a separate form because they're just sort of part of death's operations. Um, which is I liked that because it sort of explained why when death takes a holiday, like all the animals don't stop dying as well. Mm. Like it's just the humans because their more sophisticated idea of death is that line where it's like the difference between off the peg and bespoke. It's like animals have a very sort of simple understanding of death, so creating a death for them is quite easy, whereas humans have this very complicated relationship with the idea and all these interesting beliefs about it. So making a new death for them is rather more complicated and you have to do it by hand, yeah. so to speak. But then the grim squeaker is a bit more complicated because it takes a few forms before you get to right. Like, mm. he starts off as like, what, cheese? Like, why would death be, I mean, yeah. Well, cheese the cheese just- in a mousetrap, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And also just cheese if you're lactose intolerant. 
Oh, mm. imagine being a lactose intolerant mouse. I mean, that would be fine for most mice because most mice don't eat any cheese, but still, yeah. you'd be disappointed, wouldn't yeah. you? Can bear it. Oh, oh dear. Oh, no. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, look, you're making me feel blue. Oh. It's, a, it's a damn shame. <laughs> I can't was, keep up with all these cheese puns. That was subtle. That was subtle. Um, but, yeah, you, that, that's where we do get the, the Death of Rats shows up. And he's, the Grim what, Squeaker. Well, he, he's, <laughs> yeah, it's such a good name. Yeah. And he's, he's around when the fire happens because he runs into the fire to, to take the lives of – there's that one scene where it's basically like a death cameo in any other Discworld book, mm. but it's the Grim Squeaker talking to a rat who's died in the explosion <laughs> and just sort of explaining to him that he's dead and it's – it's exactly like a cameo that Death would make in any other um, Death book. I love that so much. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's 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 been sharpening his scythe though. He's been sharpening on increasingly like soft and um, more subtle things, including silk and cobwebs. And eventually, he sharpens it uh, on the sunlight coming over the mountains. Uh, but then that's not enough. That's not enough to complete the plan. He takes it to the blacksmith. And asks him to destroy it. Must be destroyed by midnight. He asks him to kill it. Yeah, to kill it. You've got to kill it. Um, And the blacksmith's like, okay, sure. But also the blacksmith's a bit distracted because he's building something. Something very, very complicated gears and pistons and levers. Three-eighths scriptly. Very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, then. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you don't want it to be shearing off in the (laughs) camera. Camshaft, I think. Disastrous results. Yes. None of us, none of us are very. You know, sort of mechanically inclined people. Oh, I think we? we covered that quite smoothly. Yeah. Um, no one will detect. I, I, I've got you know vague concepts that I've inherited from my father, but it's like I think I understand what a camshaft is. I think, mm. but really in my brain, it's just like basically if this all go wrong, yeah, all yeah. go wrong. Yeah, don't break this. This is the important bit. Yeah, this is the bit that stops it from becoming a murder machine. And I vaguely know what a combine harvester looks like, but it didn't stop me from imagining. It and all scenes it was involved in as basically the machine that Maurice builds in Beauty and the Beast. Yes, that's totally <laughs> also what I picture with the axe that's supposed to, like it's supposed to chop wood and stuff. Oh, and then when it goes yeah. all over the field, I was like, yeah, oh. right. Well, I think right. because it also spends a certain amount of time sitting on a hillside under thunder and the lightning. Yeah, and it's sort of mm. alive, and it's yeah. So yeah, it's kind of creepy. And when they first try it out, there's that scene where you know it's very it's like Paul Bunyan, you know, it's it's death. Going up against the, you know, the new machine, newfangled thing that's going to take away people's jobs. Uh, and it's like cutting up the, the, what's, what's reaping the, um, harvest on one side of the fence. And then death's doing it by hand with his scythe on the other side, going as fast as he can, presumably still taking one at a time, one at a time. Um, but doing it almost as fast as the other one, not quite making it, but he's now human enough that he gets tired out by this effort and nearly collapses. Um, so it's quite, you know, it's that sort of tragic, oh, no, I'm not good enough for the future. And it's, it's a really nice illusion because it, they feel like they're being replaced. And, of course, death is being replaced yeah. by this much more sinister figure. And he mistakes the combination harvester on the hill for the new death. He thinks it's that's what it is. Oh, um, it's all, also metaphor. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I, I mean, I do really actually love all the men of the village who are also doing the harvesting because mm. it's like, You've met these people a hundred times in a, Brit- <laughs> in a British whatever, pretty much. Yeah. Um, there was a line, actually, that I marked down. William Spigot was the one that sang when he worked, breaking into that long nasal whine, which meant that folk song was about to be perpetrated. <laughs> I really love that. It's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Patrick really does have a lot of disdain for folk music, which considering that he's created quite a bit of it 
either deliberately or inadvertently yeah. is, uh, is a bit ironic, but yeah. And also exclamation marks, which again get a, like a bollocking in, <laughs> yeah. in oh, the description yeah. later. Yeah, like sign of an unsound mind. Mm-hmm. The combination harvester is not the new death, although death does steal its um, tarpaulin to save the harvest when the storm comes on. And yeah, and I love the way that they talk about, there's that callback to Miss Flitworth's story about what happened to her fiance, how he went, had to go off on a business trip and he was supposed to return the day before they were going to get married, but he didn't make it because he died. Although some people tried to tell her that he'd run off. Um, and she's like, oh, it's like, it's drama. It's like living in a book. You shouldn't have to be like that. And then at this part of the story, death's like, oh, of course he's going to come at midnight. Cause why would he? He's the sort of person who wouldn't come at any other time if he didn't show up at midnight. Yeah. Oh, drama. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got a skeletal horse. With, yes. like, electricity. Which has already been discussed as this is not practical. Yeah. And there's yeah. a reason why Binky is Binky. Yeah. Mm. Um, and when he does finally show up, I one of the things that I did not remember about this book, I remembered that the new death was quite a significant figure. But he's really, like, I mean, you'd be lucky if he's in it for, like, four pages. Mm. You know? Like, he turns up. He comes to collect. He comes yeah. to collect. And then death runs for the scythe that should have been killed so he can now hang on to it even though he's in the realm of the dead but it's not been killed because the blacksmith can't bring himself to destroy something that's so sharp this is kind of an interesting concept of the book like earlier where one man bucket wants a drink and Mm. so she's she lights it on fire the ever since slight death of of a stiff drink and he gets the stiff drink yeah yeah and like the vase to calm everyone down like by smashing it goes to the vase goes to the world to the Let's just say netherworld. Yeah. Mm. And he can hit people with it. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Um, and that's what he's trying to do with the scythe as well. Yeah, to create a ghost of it he can handle. Yeah, but it's not there because he didn't get destroyed. And so he's without a weapon and he has to get just one of the regular scythes when they get back to the barn. But he's so angry that his scythe becomes sharp enough to destroy the new death. And it really just happens... Like, they don't even have... I was expecting, like, a sort of lightsaber kind of Darth Vader showdown. And you get a little bit of the flavor of that because there is a bit where um, one of the things that they're waving around is described a bit that way. Um, But also, um, when he does cut down the new death, he just becomes like a pile of robes. Because he's got a crown. That's the bit that makes him really angry. He's like, death doesn't wear a crown. Yeah, and he's got no face. He's just like a bit of smoke and a crown. Yeah. uh, Under the cowl. And he's not even a skeleton. Like, you don't... I mean, you don't get, you don't really figure out what he looks like exactly. He doesn't have quotation marks, but he also doesn't have a font. Yeah. Like, I think he's just, it's, it's almost like in reimagining death, the humanity has created a darker version, a less positive version. Mm. Whereas I think the death we know and love has built up over so long and has, you know, been in so many situations where death was welcomed or, okay or and it's like he's death as this is part of life whereas i think the new death is death as the monster as the darkness that's why it it like poses on hilltops and waits for the lightning to strike and turns up at midnight because it's it's like death as nightmare rather than Mm. death as just another thing just another thing yeah you would never describe this new death as the friend to the old you know this is the death that would hit on you in an uber and then call you afterwards from the number he got through uber Oh, yeah. yeah. Ew. What a jerk. <laughs> to just go back to your original Uber analogy, it's just yeah. death, the one we know and love, mm. leads people through the next stage 
kindly, whereas this one would probably take great joy in making it as terrifying as possible. And, like, purposely will take them along with their beliefs. He not only takes you home in some ways, he takes you home in a way that's going to make you feel okay about this. Yeah. And that's not new death at all. No. no. What is it saying about humanity that we can come up with that version of death? Although it's not quite clear. The auditors talk about it like they're going to fill the position with an applicant. Mm. And, uh, and you know, that they, in fact, they explicitly say that. And so that makes it a bit ambiguous as to whether the human death really is being sort of called forth from the unconscious of humans or whether there's a whole bunch of versions of death sort of waiting in the sidelines going, I want to be death. Well, I don't know. I kind of, it makes me think of uh, Hogfather Mm. where it's sort of pointing out that sort of the base level of the Hogfather and I guess by extension Santa Claus is something that starts with with blood and with darkness and maybe the death that we know was like the new death at the start you know Mm. maybe like this is millions of years of honing and balancing and shaping by experience and by humanity's changing interpretation of death and maybe he'd chill like once the animal bits like came back to him as well yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, it is a very human death. It's not anyone else's death. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, an animal would be much more likely to just say death is part of life. I mean, the mayflies are quite okay with their dark and scary trout. <laughs> I'm not sure I would be, but they seem okay with it. And it's like maybe you're right that there's an imbalance there because the animal part, the part that says it's okay to die, isn't there. It's just the, oh, God, I'm going to die one day, mm. death. Mm. He needs those because, like, yeah, the previous one is like all bits of the same thing. Yeah, but. yeah. Now, look, we—I have missed out a crucial part of that showdown is that while it is very short, the reason that death has enough time to fight back against oh, the new death. This is wonderful. Is that his time doesn't run out, and the new death sort of looks at the hourglass and is like, "Hang on a minute." Uh, and then Miss Flitworth is behind them, holding her own life timer, and having given some of her life. To death because death said that it wasn't very difficult. And so she just sort of concentrated and figured out somehow out of her desperation managed to do it and give death a bit of her time. And so he uses that time to pick up the other scythe and utterly destroy the new death. And he really is only in it for about five pages and then he's gone. But he does say for you? As in like he's because he's shocked that a human would give some of their time for... For, yeah. for death. And actually, to come back to your Uber metaphor, I think one of the interesting <laughs> things is that the auditors really are only, it's like they don't look at the customer ratings because no. the customer ratings are going to be very, very low for new death. But death himself has probably got a bit of a range, but he's probably averaging above four. He's, he's okay. He's going to keep his job. But they're not interested in that. They're only interested in KPIs. It's yeah. like, how efficient are you? How many souls yeah. are you reaping they, per hour? You know, they've how many done the performance review and it's like, he's inefficient. Yeah. He's inefficient. He's not right. And we've all had bosses like that. Yeah. yeah. Particularly when you've been in those sort of soul-destroying jobs where that's all the people above you care about. They're not caring about, are you doing a good job? They're just like, are you doing a job that's by the numbers are better than the job that you could have been doing? And you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of call center jobs are like that. Mm. Well, well, captioning is to in, in some, not in my personal company, but in mm-hmm. some companies it's actually charged by how much you can produce mm. oh, no. in, a, in a period of time, how many minutes of content. And uh, mm. to sort of put that in perspective, a well-practiced captioner will take four hours to cover an entire episode of something like Home and Away. Yeah, mm. wow. Yeah, Uncool. It well, like I said, my per, my particular company does not run like that, but it is not uncommon in the captioning industry. So mm. I certainly get the idea of productivity ratio. Go, go, go. Account for all your time. Yeah. So 
Can we blitz through the the shopping mall stuff like quite quickly because I, I feel think like so. it gets we've had a good chat about shop shopping malls and it's not the strongest part. No, I mean I do. I mean do enjoy all the allusions to aliens with yeah. the the wizards like plowing in as the trolleys all sort of zoom out of the city and they're just trying to blow them all up with their starves and shitting magic. And the dean in particular. Um, who is the one who's described as the biggest, like fattest wizard? <laughs> but he's also the one who's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my hat off and tie a bit of strip of cloth around my forehead, like I'm they're in bonsai Rocky. warriors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they talk about bush Ido, yeah. and you're like, that's not how it's pronounced, guys. Oh dear. Um, it's very silly. It's basically the joy of that section is just reading it. It's mm. the character dialogue. It's just the interactions between the. The Fresh Start Club. Like, you enjoy the people. Yeah. Not yeah. necessarily what's happening around them. Yeah, exactly. Because Windle and um, Lupine and Ludmilla end up there, but also the other members of the Fresh Start Club because they can all hear this noise that the shopping mall is making Muzak. to attract people, but it doesn't affect them in quite the same way because they're dead. And so they go to find out what it is. All the other people are just sort of standing around, staring at it, waiting for it to be finished so they can go in. And even the wizards have sort of been recruited into security. like they. Well, yeah, because they, they were there when it was being built and they've been sort of brainwashed. And I think it's just so delightfully gross and weird. Like it's that yeah, thing where yeah, there's so the the stickiness, the viscous escalator. It's like mm. yeah. the, the best bit for the me. The wetness inside. Oh, it was gross. But the revelation that they're all trying to figure out. Oh, okay, so there's these silver trolleys still in here, and then there's these gold ones with spikes on them, which are like the warriors instead of the worker drones. But then, what's making the music? Where's it coming from? They pull a speaker out of the ceiling. Um, by transforming <laughs> Arthur Wilkinson into a, a bat, but they have to like throw him up there because he's like he's not a good bat. He's yeah. not good at flying. Uh, but anyway, he brings it down, and there's this weird pink fleshy nope. tube Ew. on the end of it, and they yeah. realise that the queen of this colony of creatures is the mall itself, and underneath this sort of marble looking. Um, veneer with its glass windows There's is guts. weird flesh and it's just gross and then they're going to blow it up and I also love all of the cool spell names that they're using when they're discussing how they're going to blow it up and then the dean decides he's going to use three of them all at once and just chuck them in and they're going to have to get out but he puts them on a delay you know that classic thing because they have to go back in because they get rescued and then they realize Windle is still stuck in there. He's being a hero. He's like dismantling the queen. Yeah, but he's but he can't get out and he's not going to die. So he's a bit freaked out. But they mm. go back in for him. Um, and just as they're trying to get out, Schleppel the bogeyman like steps out from oh. behind his door and is huge and strong and he just sort of smashes things and helps them escape. And then he's like talking about, I'm just going to wander around now. I don't have to be behind anything. Look at me. And then they're like, we've got a really good cellar at the university. Do and you want to like, maybe go there? <laughs> Has it got rats? <laughs> like, yeah, and cobwebs. Some of the rats are huge. And the Charles <laughs> Chancellor is like, I don't, I don't want him in my cellar. And it's like, would you rather he was under your bed? It's like, what? Oh, okay. He's nice. I'd be like, it's fine. He'll protect me from things. I, I actually, I really love Schleffel. And I also really love the way he simply seems to decide he likes Windle. And he just decides to be with Windle. And yeah. he finds the joy in everything. Like when Windle lets him be behind his door, he's like, "Oh, it's got it's got like doorknobs and stuff." And it's, this oh. is a great door. Oh, oh the spiders in here. Yeah, <laughs> that that was my favorite pun when when they described it as a security door because <laughs> he has to hide behind it all the oh. time. Oh, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so they destroy it. They destroy it, and it and this and then that becomes pretty much you know the end of that plot yeah it's um, like they're not quite sure what's supposed to happen next yeah although i did like how i mean when it first is nearly getting ready to open it releases that sort of pod and all of the sort of grand sale leaflets come out <laughs> but then at the end when it's dying there's all these bits left closing over and they're down just sale. closing down sale yeah everything must go yeah 
Um, oh, and, 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 you know, there's also Windows sort of last thing that he wants to do before he goes back to the university is try and match make Lupine and Ludmilla together because yeah. for one week out of the month, they're both going to be wolf people. Um, whereas then the rest of the time, one of them's a wolf and one of them's a person. So it's like, oh, but, but they could be happy. That might yes. Be yeah. And I think, and like, certainly Lu- Lupine is on board with that. He he really likes Ludmilla. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you do, it is alluded to in the book, but it's like you do wonder what's going to happen that first time it happens, where how she's mm. going to go dealing with that, where she's going to be like, yep, cool, or she's going to be like, you've been following me around and I've been patting you on the head. Yeah. But at uh, least they established that there's pants in the house. Well, well yeah. yes, that's very important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I, that might soften the blow just a little bit. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Death's sort of got this epilogue too where he's defeated the new death, but the auditors are like, so what? We'll get another one. I'm not 100% clear exactly how he sells this, his return to them or whether they're sort of like- They're we'll, overruled. Yeah. They? Kinda, he goes and speaks to Azrael. Yeah, he does, and which is one of the best things in the book, although I think- because. Mm. Um, Sarah, you and I have the paperback version. Mm. And in the original hardcover, when Death goes to talk to Azrael and asks him for his favour, we've got to compare these, Liz. Yes, we should. We should, we should <laughs> because in, oh, in yes. my edition, it's this. Excuse right? me? Yeah, like it's massive. So oh, when, yeah. Even the are. full stop doesn't make it fully onto the yeah. page. There. When Azrael speaks, it, it's a massive font, uh, yeah. just massive text size, fills up the whole page in the paperback. But yours is at least formatted correctly in the sense that what was supposed to happen in the original book, it was on a left-hand side page so that you didn't see it coming until mm. you turned the page, whereas they've screwed it up for the paperback and yeah, it's, it's on, on the right-hand right page. page. So, like, a whole page before he says anything, you can see that he's going to say yes to And it draws request. you straight to it because, of course, it does. Yeah. Mm. And Death gets all his classic lines. There's no hope but us. There's no mercy but us. There is no justice there is just us, which made me think like when he's reassembling all of the little animal deaths back to him and then he sort of you know, teams up with the death of rats and the death of fleas. I'm like, oh, is that the just us league? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I thought that, that's my stupid pun. He says the classic line of the book, Lord, what can the harvest hope for if not for the care of the reaper man? And he's like, well, look, what's the point of doing my job if I don't do it with compassion? And Azrael's like, Yes, um, but much louder than that. Yeah. Was that his normal talking voice? Though? I think that's his normal voice. I think. Well, oh yeah. If he's yeah. like the death of the universe. Oh or yeah, the no, death I, of the multiverse. It's like yeah. I meant much louder than I could say it. Yes, for podcast yes. purposes. I don't want anyone listening to this to go deaf. Um, well, and you probably don't to go deaf. I don't want that either. Please stay alive, listeners. Probably don't want to blow out the mic either. Well, he gets reinstated, and also he asks for a little extra time. <laughs> For a certain person. Then he goes and swats up on the love stories of past time. I wonder if he went to Isabel's room and just like harvested her favorite ones. Yeah. Well, see, this is the part where, you know, I was saying before, I was hoping it wasn't kind of a love story because I didn't, I didn't think that was a good angle to go with death. At this point, I'm like, oh, now it is going love story. And it kind of would have made sense. Like they do have that sort of lovely chemistry and they get to know each other. It's nice. But at the and same he's really time, really got his like, feet under the table. <laughs> So weird. Now he's doing all this romance stuff. He's like stealing the biggest diamond in the world in a very Indiana oh, Jones inspired sequence. Oh, but, no, but, the flowers for us, like, yes, all of them with a ribbon and the chocolate. So where there's like a pillowed case with cats. Oh. And he's like, what's the pillow? Is it for sitting on? Are they cat flavored? And he gets angry because he's like, <laughs> yeah, death and this, cats. Is, yeah. this is not what it should be. And then they bring out the, is it dark seductions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. he's like, this is correct. <laughs> 
And then he's like, is there anything else I should be getting? Like in a panicked voice, she's like, oh, well, diamonds are a girl's best friend. Then he goes to a diamond shop and the guy keeps showing him diamonds. He's like, yes, but... How friendly is How it? How friendly is this one? Yeah. Um, that, I'm sorry, sir. Out. That's not that – we don't base things on the friendliness of the diamonds. <laughs> I do love when he then finds out that the biggest diamond in the world is Offler's diamond. Yeah. And there's the high priest and there's the priest and they take turns because no one ever comes there because it's the lost temple. And finally they're, they're listening to all the traps being sprung and it's like, oh, we haven't had one for the crocodile alley in a while <laughs> or, or for that one. Oh my goodness, someone's going to make it through the door. And they look at each other in great terror and say, oh, Mrs. Cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just think it's such a great bit. And then next thing good. they know the diamond's gone and they're kind of like, well, crap. Well, but who will know? It's just us. No, yeah. no, no one will know. We're a lost temple. Yes, exactly. I that, that was pretty funny. Yeah, so that was that was all great. He finally goes to um, see Ms. Flitworth. He presents her with all the things and he's like, here's this, this, and a diamond for you to be friends with. Yeah, and it's like the size of a football or something. Like It's massive. And he offers to take her anywhere she wants to go, in like all of space and time, and she just wants to go to the harvest dance because that's on tonight. And that's what she would be doing anyway. Yeah, so they do, and they dance, and um, Death insists that the guy keep playing. Um, and I do, there's that great bit where she says, do you dance? And he says, famed for it, Miss <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, yes, many people dance with Death. And play Monopoly with Death, apparently, oh, from an earlier bit. Yeah, that's true. He was the boot. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Just like, don't, no. no it just, that just reminded me of Bill and Ted's bogus journey where they're trying to get one over on Death. And he's expecting to play chess, but they, they want to play all these weird board games, including Guess Who and the Game of Life and just nonsense. Miss Flitworth is not going to have the wool pulled over her eyes. She realizes that she's going to die tonight. And she keeps being like, I, and she like calls him on it. Mm. But then there's like this really good reveal that she's already dead. She, when he first popped up, she goes, Yo, you gave me a start. And he goes, Well, actually, I gave you a stop. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really, I don't know that it's, I know that it has all the hallmarks of a romantic gesture, but mm. I'm not sure that it is a romantic gesture. I think it's almost like turn down service. Like you've been my friend. You've been, you've been my confidant. You've been here for me in a way that other humans haven't. So I'm going to give you what I can give you. Yeah. In thanks. Cause I, and particularly the way he then at the end deposits her in time, in the right frame of time to basically leave with Rufus. Yeah. Mm. To me, it's not a, even though it has all the hallmarks of a romantic action, I think it's a, I think it's compassion and I think it's a thank you in lots yeah. of ways. Well, I really like that bit where she looks down at herself. She's like, Oh, you made some changes. She's, he's like, No time. Like life made some changes. And she, there's that really great bit where they're exploring the idea that people have like an inherent age. Like, you know, how mm. some people are born middle aged. Yeah. And she sort of said, Oh, well, it's nice that I guess inside all along I was 18. Yeah. Which is like, I assume the age that she was going to marry Rufus. Yeah. I think certainly when you hear some of her backstory, you get the feeling that she's like frozen in time as this young father's daughter thing like she still focuses on things the way her father taught them they should be she still focuses in on rufus like she's never mm. she never well, turned away from the person she was at that point her life stopped sort of yeah. there and or, like plateaued yeah which i find kind of sad and disappointing i mean 
like as a device, it's great. And she sort of leaves that behind when she dies. And she certainly hasn't stopped living in mm. some ways. But I mean, there's a creepy scene where death, before he does all this, goes to her house and like looks in her chests to see that she does in fact have a whole bunch of gold in there. Like everyone's been telling him the whole time. And she also has a chest that's got all these keepsakes, which are like, you know, her old wedding dress and her old shoes from the wedding. And she's kept all that stuff. Um, and eventually they, they use, a, you know, some of the wedding dress to sharpen the scythe and stuff. But but he's, it's in there and she's sort of, yeah, frozen in time like you suggest. I think for me, I would have liked it if he had done all these things for her, but he hadn't been specifically looking up romantic things to do for her. Like if he'd yeah. just been there for her as a friend rather than, you know, as this sort of romantic payoff partner interest thing. But she's yeah. got the diamond to be friends with, so. <laughs> I guess that's true. Who yeah. needs another friend when you've Wait, got a diamond the size of a football? Don't they throw it on stage during the dance? Oh, they yeah, leave it. it. They give it to the fiddler to keep him playing. Yeah, yeah I yeah. have to admit, during that scene, I actually always picture the the band from Back to the Future 3 <laughs> because they play the same bit of music over and over again. Yeah, like they yeah. stop and they start again. That's ZZ Top, isn't it? That band is ZZ Top. Is that Z- Well, actually yeah. with the beards, yes. And they, they wrote a song for the film, but it was not a big hit, so no one remembers it the way they remember The Power of Love. Yeah, I, it's, it's over the credits or something, yeah. But mm. the, the way they play the same tune over and over, it's like... I just picture. I, I, can, I, picture I can hear that song in my yeah. head right now. I've, so I've watched catchy. that film too many times. Yeah, um, yeah. I, no, I was raised on Back to the Future. Uh, oh, I do. Also, there's like when they're doing the dance and they're talking about they're doing a tango, and Death mm. says maracas. I don't need no maracas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like that's great. Well, there's two other things that happen at the end of the book. We Windle finally gets his death on the brass bridge where he'd previously had <laughs> jumping into the ankh to see if it would help. It did not. It's a um, little angsty thing to do. <laughs> and, and, Col- oh, and, and Colin's like, you're not going to jump off it again, are you, sir? Like, no, mm. no I'm not going to do that. So he gets a note, doesn't he? He does. He gets a note from Mr. Ixalite. Who, who has clearly sidled up somewhere and then sidled away. Yeah, <laughs> death comes. He gets a few last sort of cliché. In fact, it's quite a string of clichés at the end there, um, which is, you know, I feel like if anybody deserved them, it was Windle. And that great line at the end, that was your life, <laughs> which was nice. Uh, death recalls all of the other deaths back into himself, except for the death of rats and the death of fleas. I'd totally forgotten the death of fleas. Yeah, me too. And I don't know if it shows up again. No, because the death of rats you see again yeah. many times. It's yeah. kind of wonderful. Uh, and they argue about whether he should ride, you know, like a cat or a terrier. <laughs> uh, and he's like, no, it should be a terrier. And the death of fleas can ride it as well. Mm. Um, and of course, he ends up with quite a different steed later on, but we'll, we'll leave mm-hmm. that for a future discussion. Yes. How do we feel about the ending of the book? We all, we all, were we very satisfied? I mean, I, I, I think I found it quite satisfying. What do you think? I thought it was good because Death, he's alone because like they're him, but he's gotten a little bit more humanity, but he's not Bill Dora. Like he's regressed back, but he, I, I wouldn't like to see him alone again. So it's kind of nice that he's kind of got a little club of his own. Yeah. I mean, it reminded me, I, I was on another podcast called um, Once and for All. You're on another podcast? I was a, I was a guest. <laughs> I was a guest. I'm sorry. But it's a, it's a podcast in which two fictional characters are pitted against each other in battle and um, the guests argue about which one would win. And, that sounds awesome. And yeah. I was on there to talk about the death of the Discworld and the death of the Endless from the Sandman comics. Okay. And we talked about the fact that the death of the Endless spends one day every century living a mortal life and dying. And I'm like, yeah, but if you do that every century, surely you know you're just going to go back and be death again. And supposedly it sort of grounds her and makes her feel like she's, you know, human. 
But I kind of feel like in, in this book, you know, death had his job taken away. He's been fired. He's going to die. And he has this experience of living his life thinking that's it and not choosing to do it and wiping his memory of who he is, but dying knowing he's death and is still going to be no one. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, he has a more authentic experience of what death is going to be like than Death of the Endless has, where she becomes a mortal human and doesn't remember being death. So she's not really giving up all that she is. She's just giving up this sort of pretend life that she's created for the purposes of dying, you know. Not that I want to put her down. I think she's a fantastic character as well. But, yeah, I just it, it occurred to me that that's a real thing that he's been through and that he's clearly going to be a bit different after that, although he was already very compassionate and caring beforehand. Are there any bits that we really enjoyed that people want to talk about? When Death meets the Grim Squeaker for the first time at the Death of Rats, um, they have that good conversation in Squeaks and he goes, I, I guess you could murder a cheese or something like that. Like, because Death is like, <laughs> yeah. I could murder a curry. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice callback. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? Are there any favourite bits we haven't talked about? I really like the way, even though they're really two disparate plots to me, they do have some similarities um there's a part where really very close together i think is the end of a windle section and the start of a death section they both say um maybe life is something you acquire oh yeah and i i really like that line because i think it says a lot about what both windle and death decide to do with their surprise time i mean windles is surprise extra time and deaths is surprise less time Mm. But both of them basically decide, I'm going to do something with this. And in some ways, Windle has more of a life once he's dead than he's than he did beforehand. And in lots of ways, death has more life than maybe he ever expected to have. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, really, I really like that line and I really like that sentiment, I guess. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Ben? Oh, I really like the line um, where the, uh, the priest, Rid Kelly, says, I, I suppose there's not some kind of magic you don't know about. And Rid Cully says, if there is, we don't know about it. <laughs> and he says, fair enough. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I really, I enjoyed that sort of frank exchange. Um, but yeah, there's just so many, so many good gags. So I, good I do gags. love um, Miss Flitworth, why does not the cockerel crow yes. properly? Oh, and he oh. writes the note for Cyril the crow. Yeah. Yeah. And cockerel, he's like, I mean, this you will read, he said. Cyril peered myopically at the cockadoodle-doo in heavy gothic script. Somewhere in his tiny, mad chicken mind, a very distinct and chilly understanding formed that he'd better learn to read very, very quickly. <laughs> and then later it's like he's learnt to read, but it turns out he's dyslexic and it's like Docker-loodle fog yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I really, it's just one of those moments of Pratchett madness that is it's what makes him so good. Oh, actually, um, I, I just thought of uh, another line that I really liked. And this is not, not a gag, but when they're talking about, or he's, he's talking about how belief works. And, you know, there's this long, it's, it's a theme throughout the Discworld books that belief creates gods and, and those sorts of creatures rather than the other way around. Um, but there was a line that said, belief can't move mountains, but it can create someone who can. And I was like, oh, that's good. I like that. I thought that was very clever. And I just remembered one that I really liked is when they're discussing how the wizards normally didn't fit into normal society and they're talking to veterinary about paying taxes. And he was talking about paying it (laughs) per capita. And if they didn't want to pay per capita, per capita could be arranged. (laughs) That's right. And they end up saying, well, we'll give a voluntary donation. That just happens to be the amount of tax you wanted. Yeah, that was great. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. that, that sort of lovely bureaucracy of it of... As long as all the right words are on this, we're okay with this. I also, um, I really like 
uh, when he's sharpening the scythe and talking about what what's right and what's wrong, mm. um, I've never been very sure about what is right, said Bill Dore. I am not sure there is such a thing as right or wrong, just places to stand. And I, I kind of like that. It's it's lovely, deep Pratchett. Mm. Yeah, and I like how much she disagrees with him as yeah. well. It's like, no, there's a right and a wrong, and we know which one's which. Yes, um, and the revenue is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, we've got quite a few listener questions, so we should get on to those. But in terms of questions, we got a few really good ones from Sally Evans, um, one of which we covered, which is about the two sort of separate storylines and the trolleys one and how that fit in with the general bigger picture. Mm-hmm. They also asked another one, which was, what's the deal with Azrael? in that this is maybe the only time that the Discworld universe is shown as definitively having some kind of cosmic intelligence involved. Thoughts, feelings, and opinions? For me, he's, you know, he's the death of the universe, and and there's that idea that there are deaths on many worlds, and, and so we know that there's more than one, and there's this idea that, well, the whole universe has to die, so someone has to take care of that, mm. uh, and it's going to be this creature, Azrael, which is not a reference to Gargamel's cat, by the way. Um, <laughs> I was looking this up. It's the, the angel of death from Islam. And the the classic depiction of Israel is that they are an angel with millions of eyes, like as many eyes as there will ever be people who live. And every time a person uh, is born, when they die, he closes one of his eyes. And when all his eyes are closed, he dies. And that's the end of the universe. And I was like, wow, that's a yeah. cool story. A bit sad, but amazing. But it is interesting that there is this higher organization of the auditors though as well. Because they do come back in later in at least Hogfather. I think they're in they might be in Thief of Time as well. Oh I adore Thief of Time, but mm. yeah. Yeah. But um but I it's not clear where they come from because they don't seem to be created by the belief of people. Although I guess maybe their shape is. So this is that's a really interesting question actually now that I think about it. I was all ready to go, well I don't know that there is. I think there's just a death of the universe. But then I'm like, no, because there's the auditors as well and that indicates there's this whole system that but there's has mineral a, management. Yeah. And it's above the disc world. Like they are, you know, outside of just that sphere of influence. Although they aren't, you know, we only ever encounter them when they're interested in the disc world. So yeah, I, I guess the answer is I don't know. Um, mm. What do you think? I mean, I don't think it's the only time that cosmic intelligence is involved. Certainly there's a suggestion of a broader universe outside. Like at the end of the day, Artwin swims through space. There are other places. There is has to be some sort of cosmic intelligence, I think, because personally I think there has to be more imagination in that universe than there is in this one because, let's face it, most worlds don't ride around on elephants on a turtle that swims through space. That we know of. That we know of. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, like the disc is not impossible in our, in our universe. I mean, it highly is. Highly improbable. Highly improbable, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I think... I think there are other indications of cosmic intelligence. I think the whole inspiration particle thing mm. as well, because that seems like that's been set up and the fact that it doesn't always arrive where it's supposed to be, that, that implies an intelligence trying to do things and getting them wrong. I think it's probably the most direct time that you see cosmic intelligence in the disc world, but I think it's certainly not the only instance. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question. It's just for me. And um, it's from Nick Shadle. Where did you get that amazing edition and why doesn't my copy look like that? I can answer the first one. Um, I got it from Readings Carlton, but they're widely available. It's the new Collector's Library edition. Um, the whole Discworld series has not been released yet in this format. Yeah. And so they're available like, sort of all over the place. I've seen them in all kinds of stores. Um, in fact, in the show notes to our previous episode, there is a link to the Discworld Emporium. 
where they sell them <laughs> online. So you can find them there. We'll, we'll put another link in the show notes for this one. Great. Um, so now that I've hogged a question, let's ask another one. So this one's from Hopscotch Friday, who says, that was my very first Pratchett, that damn Josh Kirby cover art. Um, I guess I'd be curious to know just how bad an idea you think it was to read this Pratchett first. I don't think it's a terrible first Pratchett because it deals a lot with death and I think death is so much what's underneath the whole disc world itself. And I think also the other sort of key pillar is the wizards and there they are. And it's mostly the wizards you get to know over the remainder of the books rather than the sort of interchangeable ones you get earlier. Mm. So it's not a terrible place to come in. It is like a taster plate like we've talked about before. Like it's kind of good to start in one where you get that cross-section. So you get a bit of a glimpse of the City Watch with Colin. Mm-hmm. You get to meet Dibbler. Um, you, you just get to meet the, yeah, a good cross-section of the community. Mm-hmm. And I guess a rule of thumb with do we think it was a bad idea to start with that, did he keep reading them? And if he did, then it wasn't a bad idea. Yeah, okay. To be absolutely truthful, the Josh Kirby covers significantly delayed my entrance into reading Pratchett. I saw the cartoons as a kid, but I would wander around the library at school because that was my favourite place to be. I was a library captain and everything. You also got a library captain? Yeah. What, what, is, what a is a library, library captain? captain? Um, basically, it mostly meant you were free labour for the library. You check books in and out. Mm. Um was but, it, were there perks? Like, did you get to choose some of the new books that the library got? I, I always knew what was coming, um, and it meant I had an excuse to be there and be in the section. Like, I would say a significant amount of my love of books and reading of books has just been hiding out in that library. And I used to look at the Josh Kirby covers and go, this doesn't look like a book I want to read. As an adult, I look at the art and go, yeah, yeah, maybe th- it's cool. I, I can sort of get behind it. But at least for your soft fantasy reading maybe even female, it's not an easy way to come to them because it doesn't look like something you want to read. It doesn't look like the sort of fantasy covers they put on, say, a book written by a woman. Hmm. Yeah. All right, our next question comes from Sir Sarah Dudley. So, although Reaver Man isn't my favourite Discworld, it did inspire Paul Kidby's Lanker Gothic, which is one of my favourite Discworld images. Any of you have a favourite piece of Pratchett-inspired art? I'm going to quickly start with No. Okay. <laughs> For me. Um, because, yeah. yeah, there's such a broad cross-section I can't choose. Um, Death with the Kitten from Last Hero. Oh, yeah. I've got that at home and I remember – oh, and that's in, um, the bit where the turtle looks back at – I think it's Rincewind when they're in space. That's Paul Kidby, isn't it? Yes, yeah, I believe so. Some yeah. great art in that book. I think also the whole of Where's My Cow is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all in some way lost our cow? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, deep ex- existential loss of cow. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I remember back this morning when there was one like, that stood her in around 40 minutes, 40 whole minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those were the days, yeah. the hours. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I actually do have one. It's a very recent one. Paul Kidby's just completed a, a new version of an illustration he did for the His World exhibition, which was over in the UK, of a whole bunch of stuff from Terry Pratchett's office and Discworld paraphernalia. And I, I think the title of it is The Imaginarium of Professor Pratchett. And it's Terry Pratchett in profile wearing a top hat, and out of the top hat are coming all these different things from his books. Um, including some of the um, curses from this book um, and also a bunch of other characters. And it's a beautiful piece of art that I think really sums up a lot of the ideas that he has. But there's just, there's just so many good ones. I mean, how do you choose a favourite? Any any picture of death as the Hogfather is also high oh. up on my list. But I think I think that new one by 
um, Porky piece amazing. I really yeah. love it. I was and- looking that looking at that in the bookshop the other week, and I was like, "Ooh, do I? Do I? Yes." <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, I I resisted, but I I may not resist much longer. Yeah, there's um, a there's a book that accompanies the uh, the exhibition. If you're wondering which book we're talking about, um, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to it. It's it's very expensive, but very beautiful. Yes, I like to backpedal a bit because I I stick by I can't choose a favorite, but I would like to mention that George Rex, who's done a past episode with us, does some really good fan art, and I in particular like her Angua. Oh yeah, that was super cute. Yeah, yes, so that's so worth checking out. So next question and last question is from Ashwin Sneezed. All right, what about this? Who'd be the best voice to do death? My vote is Alan Rickman. Oh, that is Alan Rickman. We, can we, we have, I mean, look, I know it's death, but we should probably choose someone who's alive. To Christopher do this Lee. Voice. Oh, no. Oh, well, this is I the know. thing. In almost all of the adaptations, cartoon or live action, in everything except The Hogfather, it is Christopher Lee. Yeah. And he's perfect. He's perfect. I feel like maybe Charles Dance, Tywin Lannister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, he is veterinary in, I think, Hogfather. Yes. I think if you have to do without Christopher Lee, which of course we do, I think maybe Charles Dance isn't a horrible choice. But yeah, I think I think Christopher Lee being gone from the world has robbed us of the perfect voice for death. Mm. We talked about this in the Mort episodes, and I think that you know any of the big three of the Hammer horror film sort of era could have done a great job of it, like Peter Cushing. Well, probably, well, oh yeah, maybe not Vincent Price, but Peter <laughs> Cushing would have been a great death voice as well. I, I thought um, Ian Richardson did a great job. In Hogfather, yeah, he, no, he, he works. I guess I'd just gotten so used to Christopher Lee yeah. that it's like. This isn't right. Alan Rickman also, good choice. Um, I'm trying to think who else has got a really... I mean, you want someone with kind of a really deep voice with a lot of gravitas, don't you? But yeah. not scary either. Yeah, like a deep but pleasant voice. I mean, you'd almost say Morgan Freeman. Like, you can almost get away with Morgan Freeman. If he could do an English accent. Yeah, that's true. It is so quintessentially English somehow, mm. the Pratchett world. Yeah. So the name that comes to my mind, and I can't hear his voice, which doesn't work well, is Jeremy Irons because yes, he, he commands a room yes. whenever he's in a scene. That's all you're looking at, no matter what he's doing. And I feel like that's a combination of presence, his voice, mm. and everything. So yeah. I feel like that could work. You know who else? Ian McKellen. That's exactly yeah. what I was about to say. Because also he's really good at being, he's, got, he's yeah. really funny when mm. he needs to be funny. Um, I think he could really nail it as well. And and similarly, uh, Patrick Stewart as yeah. well. Oh, imagine, what if they both did it and you blended their voices together? Oh, jeez. They would have so much fun doing that as well. <laughs> they would. Being best mates. Or around. them each being one of the deaths in the showdown. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah, that could be pretty That would be wonderful. Okay. All right, I think we've solved the problem. <laughs> I think I think we've done it. We found uh, some people who are alive, at least. Yeah, yeah. few, few. <sighs> um, but Patrick's just going to be busy being yeah. Jean-Luc Picard again. Sorry, I had to say I, it. No, it's no, exciting. it's like must suppress huge inner squee at yeah. that. Um, I was like, oh, it's April, is it? Okay, um, no, it's not. It's real. It's happening. But look, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been heaps of fun. It's, it's been great having you. Um, we hope that if you ever get asked any more Discworld questions, you, you will not be asked such horrendously difficult ones. I do deeply wish that I'd been able to answer just one. Just one. I would have felt better about things. But did, did you not answer any? I thought you had got at least one of them. Of, of the f- five hard ones at the end, I was very close to one. Specifically, Sir Terry's crest uh, has Latin. The question was, what's the Latin? 
I'd looked up what it meant. Uh, I couldn't remember the Latin. I still don't remember the Latin. It's uh, don't fear the reapers. And there's actually a more pork owl on his crest as well. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Uh, it's on the Wikipedia page if you want to see it. It's, okay. it's pretty cool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes And I will too. listen to Blue Oyster Cult while looking at it. As we always do, we like to tell you what book we'll be reading next. Um, and so, Liz, next time, what are we reading? Which is abroad. Oh, yes. We have decided we're doing three in a row, episode 11, book number 11 in the Discworld, and episode 12 will be book number 12 in the Discworld. <laughs> it's very tidy. Like, I feel like the bursar would enjoy that. Yeah. Um, it, it won't last, so enjoy it while <laughs> it does. And who will be our guest, Liz? Jackie Tang. It's going to be really good. Yeah. Yeah. And look, we'll be recording the next episode quite close to the time this one comes out. So please get your questions in for Witches Abroad as soon as possible. You can tweet them to us or send them to us on other social media using the hashtag Pratchat12. And of course, if you'd like to join the conversation about this episode and Reaper Man, please tweet at us and use the hashtag Pratchat11. And look, uh, thanks again to everyone who's been spreading the word about the podcast. Um, it's been lovely. We're coming up on a full year of episodes, which is quite exciting for us. We've got hopefully some interesting and exciting announcements coming in the next few months about some, maybe some special episodes, but we'll wait until things are confirmed before we tell you about that. But until then, please do keep telling people about us. Um, and also remember that you don't need to fear the Reaper Man. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Sarah Pearson. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast or on the web at pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat11. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.